the testimony after I, I left the Senate, the guard's name that was one of my closest guards, his name was Brian. Mm -hmm. um, he worked for, I think it, he was with ICE, I can't remember. But um, after we left the Senate chamber, he, 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 because uh, he had been very icy, no pun intended, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, towards me uh, until he heard my, my testimony. After I, I left the Senate chamber, he, he said, he turned to me and he said, Mr. Noaz, uh, can I shake your hand? I said, sure, why? He said, uh, up until, up until I heard your testimony, I thought I was protecting America from you. Now I realize I need to protect you <laughs> from everybody else. And I want to shake your hand. I said, oh, thank you. So he, he actually listened clearly quite intently. We became, um, I don't want to say friends, but we, we stayed in touch for a while after that. Yeah. And uh, I still have his details, but it was a very interesting, interesting and surreal experience. Wow. Hey everybody, welcome to the What Is Money Show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, if this is your first time listening to the What Is Money Show, I strongly recommend that you go back to episodes one through nine first, which lays a lot of the groundwork for many of the concepts that we explore on the show. These first nine episodes are my series with Michael Saylor and thousands of people have told me that this is the best podcast series they've ever heard hands down, and that it was instrumental to their understanding of money and Bitcoin. So if you're looking to start a deep dive into the nature of money, I don't think there's any place better that you can start other than episode one of this show. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. The What Is Money show is 100% sponsor based. So all of our revenues are derived from direct sponsorships. And I strive to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically only using sponsors that I use personally, and also choosing sponsors that have values which are well aligned to the values expressed on this show, such as freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm going to do now is a few ad reads right at the top of the show, and then I'll do a few more ad reads in the middle. And I hope you'll take the time to listen to them, as again, these are hand-selected sponsors, and I think you'll like what they have to offer. Today's podcast is brought to you by In Wolf's Clothing. Wolf is the first startup accelerator dedicated exclusively to the Bitcoin Lightning Network. Four times per year, Wolf brings teams from around the world to New York City to work with like-minded entrepreneurs, pushing the boundaries of what's possible with Bitcoin and Lightning. The program is designed to help early-stage companies achieve product market fit, develop their brand, secure early-stage funding, and grow businesses that help fuel the global adoption of Bitcoin. So go to wolfnyc.com to learn more about the program or apply. Again, that's WolfNYC, W-O-L-F-N-Y-C.com. Majid Nawaz, welcome to the What Is Money Show. Thank you, Robert. It's good to be here. Lovely place, by the way. Thank you so much. Uh, you are officially the second guest in our Nashville studio, so this is super cool. Who's the first? Uh, Andrew Bustamante, uh, CIA, ex-CIA guy, also is. very interesting. <laughs> so I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm following the ex-CIA guy. Yeah, very interesting <laughs> conversation as well. But yeah. Um, yeah, I think we'll be going down some similar rabbit holes today. Um, so I guess by way of quick introduction, yeah. how I was introduced to your work was I heard you appear on the Joe Rogan podcast. Mm. Uh, you guys did, I think this maybe was your second appearance together. You guys did like a four-hour episode 
I distinctly remember driving through Kauai, listening to your story and being moved uh, emotionally several times. It's it's a very extreme story. Um, you've seen a lot of yeah. different sides of humanity in your life. It's surreal slightly. I sometimes pinch myself because uh, <laughs> I, I was last night, I was in, a, I'm, I, we're in Nashville. Yes. I, it, I should say this is my second home. I was married in this city. Uh, my son was born in this state, uh, married to an American Tennessean from Knoxville. Yeah. And uh, it's a, it's really always a, a pleasure to be back in this city. And uh, it's changed a lot since we married here. Mm. But this is our second home. Our, our primary home currently is in London, but we're mm. between both places. And so last night, um, I was with my, with my wife and I was just reflecting. We went out for dinner because we've come uh, for the three-hour drive from Knoxville here just mm -hmm. to, to see you. So... I, I said to her, come, come for a dinner and we'll, uh, we'll spend the evening together. Mm -hmm. And, uh, one of the reflections we had is actually, I still find it very surreal. I, my first time I came to this country, to the United States of America, I was blacklisted. I wasn't allowed in. Mm. I was banned from entering the United States. Um, because I have a, a, a prison record mm -hmm. and you have to declare that. But my prison record clearly, though not a criminal offense, I was a political prisoner because it was during the war on terror mm -hmm. and I was uh, detained in Egypt and arrested for attempting to overthrow the Egyptian government. The, uh, of course, the U US at the time, at the peak of the war on terror with George Bush as president, took that quite seriously and decided I was a persona non grata, mm -hmm. that I should not be allowed into the United States of America. So uh, it was funny because as I say, it's surreal sometimes to think about it. I was um, Blacklisted from entering the country, but received an invitation from then Senator Lieberman, mm -hmm. who was uh, chairing the committee, the Senate Committee on Homeland Security. And he asked me to come and testify uh, because I'd started to speak out against ideological extremism uh, emanating from my faith tradition. Mm -hmm. uh, I am a Muslim and proud mm -hmm. to be a Muslim. Uh, but as the Prophet Muhammad once said, uh, in one of his hadith or traditions, he said, be aware of extremism in mm. religion. Mm. It's a uh, confirmed saying of the Prophet Muhammad. And I, um, having succumbed in my childhood to, uh, which for reasons we can go into, but to some of the more extreme elements of the ideological narratives that were prevalent, uh, particularly during the decade of the so-called war and terror that were prevalent on the Muslim side. Of course, mm -hmm. there was extremism prevalent on the government side as well. Uh, but I uh, um, had succumbed to that. And that's why I ended up in uh, as a political prisoner in Egypt. So I was blacklisted from coming into this country. And uh, Senator Lieberman wanted me to come and speak to all of this extremism stuff mm -hmm. in the Senate. And uh, they, uh, they invited me. And um, one day before I was due to travel to fly out there, we realized um, that I couldn't come in. So uh, Senator Lieberman, uh, at the time, he went slightly ballistic because he wanted his star witness to attend. It was the first time in history uh, that a former Islamist political prisoner would be testifying in, in Congress. So uh, in the end, literally with a couple of hours to fly, <laughs> it's a funny story, I got a phone call from this uh, anonymous uh, uh, man who, who was from purporting to be from the U.S. Embassy. Mm -hmm. And he said to me... Um, Mr. Nawaz, he said, I am calling on behalf of the U.S. government. And uh, would you like to meet us in the airport um, one hour before you're due to check in? I said, sure. Um, he said, it's about your visa. Um, we found a solution. I said, all right. I said, how will I recognize you? It's a true story. I said, how will I recognize you? He said, I'll be wearing a blue raincoat. <laughs> 
So I went to the airport and uh, I found this man standing underneath this information desk with a blue raincoat on and he handed me, uh, <laughs> he handed me three brown envelopes. And I said, what are these? And he said, well, these are your parole visas. And I said, what's a parole visa? He said, it's a visa we give mafia bosses who are convicted <laughs> um, and therefore barred from entering the United States of America because they're serving prison time. But we need them to testify against US mafia. So we give them what's called a parole visa. I said, great, doesn't matter. You're going to get me in to testify at the Senate. He said, well, there's a catch. I said, what's that? He said, uh, the conditions of a parole visa is you have to remain under 24-7 armed guard. Hmm. Because actually it only works if you're on parole. Now, I know you're not on parole, and I'm very sorry, but it does mean that you're going to enter the United States under effective arrest. I said, oh, my God. I said, well, I said, listen, fine, if it gets me to testify at the Senate, I've seen a lot worse. I said, why are there three brown envelopes? He said, well, this is the content of the visa. He said, there's one to give into the, uh, uh, the check-in desk on this end at Heathrow. The other you have to surrender to the immigration customs enforcement on the other side. And the third one is for you to keep, which I still have, by the mm -hmm. way. I said, all right, great. Um, he said, sir, there's another catch. Please don't get offended. <laughs> I said, what's that? He said, uh, when we get to the other side, immigration customs enforcement are going to take your fingerprints because you're officially under arrest. <laughs> I said, okay, fair enough. So I came in and uh, they took my fingerprints and everything. And from that moment at the airport at Washington, D.C., at the Dulles Airport, all the way for the entire journey, I was kept under 24-7 armed guard with snipers in the hotel uh, room opposite me. I don't know why they put snipers there, but they did. And um, was under permanent escort. But I did manage eventually to testify. That That's online, um, uh, the testimony. Mm -hmm. There's both the written version of it. This is 2007, a year after my release from prison. Uh, the written version of it, as well as the video, um, it's a matter of uh, record. And uh, it's interesting because what I testified um, to at the Senate in the time has, I think, stood the test of time mm -hmm. uh, in that I articulated a lot of my early thinking around the distinction between Islam, the faith, and what I came to, uh, came to call the Islamist ideology, which mm. in one sentence I'll say is the desire to impose any given version of Islam over society. Mm. Um, I believe it was the uh, post, or sorry, I believe it was the interwar European um, political trends, fascist trends between World War I and World War II that had permeated into the Middle East and influenced Muslim thinking uh, that, that gave rise to this desire to create a hierarchical clergy within Islam where Islam never had such a clergy. Mm. In other words, it's a very Catholic concept. Mm. But anyway, that's again another conversation. But... Um, it's all there. It's it's on the testimony in, in official record in the Senate. And um, I was just reflecting on this last night because there's no way I, I, I dreamed of at the time uh, entering the United States for the first time in such conditions mm -hmm. under 24-7 armed guard that I would eventually be married to somebody from this very state of Tennessee <laughs> and have a child uh, who was born here and have family here. So it's it's a very surreal, <laughs> surreal experience. Um, one last thing from that, the testimony after I, I left the Senate the guard's name that was one of my closest guards, his name was Brian. Mm -hmm. um, he worked for, I think it, he was with ICE, I can't remember. But um, after we left the Senate chamber, he, he he because uh, he had been very icy, no pun intended, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, towards me uh, until he heard my, my testimony. After I, I left the Senate chamber, he, he said, he turned to me and he said, Mr. Noah, uh, can I shake your hand? 
I said, sure, why? He said, uh, up until up until I heard your testimony, I thought I was protecting America from you. Now I realize I need to protect you <laughs> from everybody else. And I want to shake your hand. I said, oh, thank you. So he, he actually listened clearly quite intently. We became, um, I don't want to say friends, but we, we stayed in touch for a while after that. Oh. And uh, I still have his details, but it was a very interesting interesting and surreal experience wow that's fascinating yeah. stuff so what you mentioned something there um the imposition of an ide- ideology yeah. is where you drew the line between i guess the faith and i think you said ideological imposition or capture yeah, yeah. is that so is that the line it's coercion it's well let, let me say something unequivocally that 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 is a, historically a matter of record mm-hmm. that most people today don't realize and assume the opposite and that is that traditional Islam, and I'm talking about prior to the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, traditional Islam has been legally pluralistic. And Muslims, traditionally, in the overwhelming majority uh, in terms of numbers, but also in terms of just authority of tradition and theological grounding, have not imposed any given version of Islam over society. In fact, that is that concept... It's not only a modern innovation, mm. it is a, uh, if you speak to traditional Muslims, and I have a, a teacher, uh, a spiritual mentor, Sheikh Ali uh, Abdul Qadir Al-Qadri, he's a uh, scholar who is uh, Malaysia-based but travels globally, um, of the Qadriya uh, spiritual order. And uh, we are very well connected through our teacher and through our tradition with a, a firm grounding in what traditional Islam teaches. So it's not just uh, in terms of numbers, but also the teaching. Islam was not um, defined by this desire to impose one version or one reading over mm. society. In fact, the exceptions to that you find were very interestingly in Europe. So the two exceptions to that, uh, the first was that um, uh, you may have heard that uh, Spain once had a 900-year period of Islamic rule. Mm-hmm. Um, most people don't remember that actually, but it's very interesting. Andalusia, or the uh, southern part of Spain, uh, where today you will see the remnants like Alhambra Palace, one of the most beautiful wonders of the world. Mm-hmm. I highly recommend everybody to go and see it. I, in fact, wanted to go. My marriage that ended up my wedding that ended up happening here in in Nashville. I wanted it initially to happen there because mm-hmm. it, for me, represented the coexistence of Catholicism and Islam in Europe. Mm-hmm. But of course, that all came to an end with the Inquisition. But um. Mm-hmm. The remnants of that you still see there in Spain. But for that 900-year period of Islamic rule in Spain, now think about that. 900 years is no joke. The uh, Towards the end of that period, the Frankish invasions from the north uh, were in an attempt to, uh, or the so the reconquista, the, the, to the reconquering of the Spain. Mm-hmm. Um, th- that threatened the, the remnants of the Umayyad dynasty in Spain who had ruled there. And they were there because they fled the coup against them in the Middle East by the Abbasid dynasty. Mm-hmm. So you heard of the Abbasid Caliphate, the Umayyads who fled them because they were then purged from Iraq and other areas. They settled in Spain. Eventually, the Frankish invasions from the north uh, were seeking to remove any remnants of Islamic influence in Spain. And in an attempt to keep Islamic Spain united, the Umayyads in Spain, for the first time, uh, decided that they needed legal unity and cultural unity. So they adopted one particular reading from the four main uh, schools of jurisprudence in Islam. Uh, There are many schools of 
Islamic jurisprudence, but there are four main ones. The Hanafi, Shafi'i, Maliki, and Hanbali schools. Mm-hmm. Uh, to roughly place them, people in South Asia are Hanafi. Uh, people in North Africa are Maliki. People in, say, the Gulf region and Saudi Arabia are Hanbali. And uh, the Shafi are mainly in the Levant region. That's all rough and roughly. Mm-hmm. It's not mm-hmm. precise. But um, the in, in Islamic Spain, to try and keep the population united against what they saw as a foreign threat, they adopted the Maliki school of jurisprudence as law. That was one of the first times that was done. Uh, the desire to impose one interpretation over society. Ironically, it was in Europe. The other time it was done was with the decline of the Ottoman Caliphate, which was removed in 1924, post-World War I. Mm-hmm. And for the same reasons, the Ottomans feeling the loss of their empire, uh, which you, you, you can even see today with the decline of um, the American empire globally and the way in which the media is attempting to force one hegemonic narrative over people. It's mm-hmm. what happens when empires are declining. They they try and hold on to power. Right. Right? So the Ottomans tried this and they tried to impose uh, the Hanafi, because Turks are Hanafi, they tried to impose the Hanafi in uh, uh, school of jurisprudence over society. That failed, um, but the Ottomans ended up with um, something that was more true to tradition before, they, before the collapse of the empire, and that was known as the millet system. Mm-hmm. And the millet system was a legally pluralistic system. So the Ottoman Caliphate, which is the last example of a legitimate Islamic Caliphate on the planet, had a legally pluralistic system. Now that means that if Robert disputes with Mike here and is in Ottoman in Ottoman Turkey, Robert might can choose whether if they define themselves as Christian to go to a Christian arbiter for their dispute, mm-hmm. if they're Jewish, to go to a Jewish arbiter, if they're whatever, Muslim, to go mm-hmm. to a Muslim arbiter. That was a legally pluralistic system. It didn't have one law for the whole land, mm-hmm. but rather it was based on arbitration. The uh, legal unitary systems came about in Europe. They are very much tied to the concept of the nation state and the Westphalian principle. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's why I say that the modern Islamist project is directly influenced by this idea that you have to have one law for the entire country. Now, that Mm -hmm. idea in itself didn't exist in history Mm -hmm. until the idea of the modern nation state came about. And it's impossible for anyone before the idea of the modern nation state uh, uh, to, uh, that uh, came about to have come up with the idea mm-hmm. of having one canon. Mm-hmm. The, the word they used to use uh, in Arabic is kanun, mm-hmm. yeah, canon being a, mm-hmm. a, a canon of law. To have one canon for the entire country, it wasn't the case. Constitutions didn't right. exist. People hadn't thought of these ideas. Right. So when you hear modern Islamists say, uh, as they do, by the way, their slogans to the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, which was founded after the destruction of the Ottoman Caliphate, their slogan, quite literally, it, their founding slogan was, uh, Islam uh, is our way, uh, the Quran, sorry, Islam is our uh, ideology, the Quran is our constitution, and jihad is our way. Hmm. Now, that's uh, in their founding slogan, Quranuna Dasturuna, it's their slogan, yeah, Quran is our constitution. Mm-hmm. The word Dastur, which means constitution in Arabic, again, it, it, it's, you will not find it in traditional Islamic texts because it's like looking for the word internet mm-hmm. in traditional Islamic texts. The idea had not yet been invented. Right, right, right. right? Yes. So this idea that you have to have even an Islamic constitution is an amalgamation, an attempt to reconcile modern political thinking with tradition. Hmm. But that reconciliation in the case of Islamists went along the lines of the very Westphalian European concept, which ended up, again, we're back to the interwar period. It ended up with fascism in mm-hmm. Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's where the influence comes from 
uh, from Islamists. But but traditional Islam, prior to all of that influence, was uh, thoroughly legally pluralistic, was actually opposed to imposing one version of Sharia mm -hmm. or Islamic jurisprudence over society. And my task since leaving the former group that I was mm -hmm. a leader of and for which I was imprisoned in yes. Egypt, my task has been to draw these clarifications for people and these distinctions because during the war on terror, mm -hmm. of course, you had the other problem and that was the state-led and also media in particular, corporatist media-led narrative that Islamism is Islam, that all Muslims do seek to take over. Mm. And, and, and it was a, a very difficult time to try and draw these distinctions because, of course, I was facing attack from both those who believe that all Muslims are terrorists and those uh, Islamists yes. who believed it was our somehow our religious duty to impose Islam over everybody. Right. Wow. Yeah. Um, a lot there. So maybe we should jump into that a little bit, sure. just a little bit of sure. your story, because you come from a background in which you were effectively radicalized, I think, relatively at a young age. Yeah. And then you have a long arc that brings you to kind of a reformation of sorts and, and actually embracing Western values that you had formerly opposed or or at least uh, I guess been radically indoctrinated against perhaps um, what and this I we talk about this a lot on the show like the nature of storytelling itself um, you know Plato has this famous quote that those who those who tell stories rule society mm. and clearly in the past three years in the post um, pandemic world we have seen how important these narratives are we now are seeing a lot of censorship online yeah. a lot of effort being applied to controlling narratives or for spinning up narratives etc cetera, etc cetera. um what have maybe we could just i know you've told this story a million times i don't want to press you down to the weeds on it but i think it's a beautiful framing of your life um and talking about your journey from kind of radicalization to reformation and it adds a lot of context for everything else we're going to discuss so i don't know if there's like a maybe 20 minute version you could give us <laughs> yeah. and it sure, and sure. for people that want to hear the longer version obviously you've given this on the rogan podcast you mentioned another one you've done recently uh, patrick ben david yeah patrick ben david so if you, they wanted a deeper dive on your yeah. story they could go there and if they want an even deeper dive it's the subject of an autobiography published by uh, uh random house penguin it's called Radical by Majid Nawaz, and it goes into the entire story. Um, but I will summarize it because, as, as you say, it's available on other platforms. Yeah. Um, we can spend a lot more time on discussing some of the contemporary and ideological elements. Mm -hmm. But I was raised in, uh, um, born and raised in Southend on Sea in Essex, a place next door to London. Mm -hmm. And I, uh, at the time, we were the first generation of, um, uh, uh, of Muslims born in the UK. Uh, my parents were immigrants from Pakistan, and my my grandfather also immigrated with them. But before uh, our generation, Muslims weren't born in Europe, and Britain was the leader in that regard. So, European continental European countries, even till this day, um, those that were born and raised in Europe are probably slightly younger than 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 our generation. I'm 45 years old now, mm -hmm. but we were pretty much the first generation born. Uh, in the UK to Muslim parents who migrated from the East and the Middle East. Mm -hmm. Now, what comes with that? I, you know, I sometimes I say to people, just imagine the challenges of, um, you know, the US has known to have challenges with um, uh, African-American relations with broader society and, mm -hmm. and the various questions around historic injustices. Mm -hmm. We'd come from um, post-colonial contexts, 
but not only uh, were we of a visibly different nature, but unlike the majority of African-Americans, at least in this country, we also had a diff- very, very different um, cultural reference point and mm. religious reference points. I think that those two were, that was the most prominent difference mm. beyond skin color. And of course, all of the tensions that come with that, navigating our identity in that context for the first time in history, to be born and raised as British mm-hmm. citizens, but trying to work out where we stood vis-a-vis a very, very strained post-colonial identity. All of the migration patterns in Europe uh, came from that context. So in France with the North Africans, of course, French colonies were in mm-hmm. North Africa. Um, and in Britain was South Asia, mm-hmm. um, Pakistan, India, and Bangladesh. And uh, it was, uh, as a result, a lot of tensions emerged. In my case in particular, I could count the number of people that were like me on one hand in the entire uh, borough, Essex mm-hmm. is a borough next to London. And uh, uh, it was relatively okay up until the uh, teenage years where I faced a lot of uh, violent racism, mm. which um, when I say violent racism, I mean actually very, very violent. Um, hammer attacks, machete attacks. Before the age of... Uh, before the age of... Um, 16 years old, I'd, I'd probably seen more people stabbed um, and attacked with hammers and machetes than most people have in their lifetime. I've probably been in more uh, machete fights than most people have in their lifetime. I've been probably stood next to people that have been stabbed all over their bodies and more so than most people would have to ever see. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But then that's before the age of 16. By the age of 17, I was involved in the first, what I think is probably jah- London's first jihadist street murder, but... Um, it was murdered by, by a uh, machete attack. Mm. Um, but in this instance, it was by this time, it was uh, somebody on my side that was, uh, I believe, defending themselves, but ultimately led to the death of the mm-hmm. person they were defending themselves against uh, in East London. But this was a very violent upbringing that I had. And it was a very, uh, as a result, very traumatic uh, mm. upbringing for a teenager to go through. But at the time, as we were going through all of this, uh, the Bosnia genocide began to unfold mm. and they were also Muslim. So we uh, felt already quite disenfranchised from society, quite mm. disconnected from um, the institutions that were there, meant to be there to protect us. And then on top of that, you had the monumental failure of the institution of government in the former Yugoslavia mm-hmm. that led to the civil war in that country. And uh, all of that, le- it, it left us open, very open to... Uh, desiring a sense of belonging outside of the mainstream. My father was a blue-collar worker in the Libyan desert. He worked in the Sahara Desert all his life on the oil rigs as an uh, electrical engineer. So he wasn't at home. Mm-hmm. So we were looking, you know, he, he had to work to pay the bills. And so we were looking for that kind of older male figure. Mm-hmm. And we found it eventually in uh, these Islamist organizations that at the time were recruiting en masse uh, throughout the UK among the Muslim communities. Mm. At the age of 16, I joined an organization called Hizb al-Tahrir, which means the Party of Liberation. It was founded in 1953 in Jerusalem. And its basic aim was to resurrect the uh, caliphate that we've just been speaking of. The Ottoman caliphate was dismantled after World War I uh, uh, at the hands of uh, Mustafa Kemal Ataturk in 1924. Mm. And we wanted to resurrect this kind of global Muslim uh, empire that we felt should impose one version of Islam over society and then Mm. conquer the rest of the world through jihad. 
That's what I subscribed to at um, 16 years old. This was before Al-Qaeda came about, so I don't want to give the wrong impression. This was not a terrorist organization. It remains mm-hmm. legal. Mm-hmm. My former group remains legal both in the United States and across Europe, in fact, throughout the Western world, uh, because its means to come to power uh, was to recruit army officers and try and incite some form of palace coup from within as opposed to blow things up. Mm-hmm. So this is still not a prescribed terrorist organization. Mm-hmm. I need to make that clear because I've never been suspected nor accused of any terrorism offense, mm-hmm. and nor would I be because uh, the group is avowedly anti-terrorism. Al-Qaeda came about afterwards as an offshoot, but as happens with these things, you start down one line and the, it becomes more and more extreme as people right. you know, try and outdo each other, yeah. a bit like Stalin versus Trotsky. Yeah. In the end... Uh, I ended up on the leadership of this group in the UK um, and ended up exporting this group to um, different countries. Uh, I, uh, in 1999, I was among the first, I think the first British Pakistani member to relocate to Pakistan to export the group there. I was involved in recruiting Pakistani army officers to this organization. All of us were subsequently arrested. Um, I was involved in exporting it from Britain to Denmark. Mm-hmm. Uh, eventually, I ended up in Egypt. Um and I landed in Egypt one day before the 9-11 attacks, hmm. uh, which is what changed everything in terms of the security climate around the world. Once 9-11 happened, which we, you know, it was a completely different group, uh, we, uh, we were a few months after that, so 9-11 September, by March the next year, we were all, all rounded up, the entire group in Egypt. Hmm. I was head of the Alexandria chapter for the organization. Hundreds of us were arrested in dawn raids um, at gunpoint. Um, that was actually the second time I was arrested at gunpoint. I'd been arrested already um, at 15 in mm-hmm. Essex. At 15 years old, I'd been arrested on suspicion of armed robbery at gunpoint by Essex police authorities. But that was also false. Uh, mm-hmm. We were released the next day with an apology. But you can see I was already primed mm-hmm. to hate society. Um, they, they couldn't interrogate me in the police station because I was too young. So they had to call my mother. And they called her at 3 a.m. and said, we've got your 15-year-old. We've arrested him for suspicion of armed robbery. Um, you have to come to the police station. So she was uh, very shocked. My brother was with me at the time. But um, this time in Egypt, it was grenades and machine guns as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and they um, blindfolded us and they tied uh, tied our hands behind our backs. These and are U.S. operatives? This was Egyptian, Egyptian. state security. Okay. Okay. Uh, uh, very serious. They are. Yeah. Uh, if you think uh, Guantanamo Bay is bad... Yeah, uh, this is nothing. This is Guantanamo Bay, Abu Ghraib, even all the all the abuse images that mm-hmm. we saw from the prison in Iraq and Abu Ghraib. Mm-hmm. These all pale in comparison to what the Arab prisons do to their mm-hmm. detainees. Um, and the Arab dictators have been notorious for what they do. I mean, whatever we think of Gaddafi's removal, mm-hmm. Assad's civil war, Mubarak's removal, uh, these guys were were brutal. Um, Saddam's removal. Saddam was known to take Black and Decker drills and drill them through the heads of prisoners. Um, I've met people that, that have witnessed that um, in in Egypt. Uh, what we witnessed was uh, uh, electrocution uh, on the teeth and genitalia um, for the purposes of torture interrogation. They would torture children in front of parents to force parents to confess. Um, they would rape wives in front of husbands to force husbands to confess. It was brutal. Uh, we had people uh, detained without charge for over 25 years, held in prison incommunicado wow. with, no, with no charge, let alone uh, conviction. We were dragged through that torture dungeon 
uh, I was held in a torture dungeon for four days in Egypt with uh, my hands tied behind my back and I was blindfolded. And uh, I was given a number. My number was 42. And they read through the numbers in chronological order. Mm. The numbers went into their hundreds. And uh, they went one by one in chronological order, order and tortured everybody and forced us to listen to their screams and, mm. and they would go through the numbers. And so by the time number 41's turn was up, uh, he was next to me. He was crying, the poor man. And he asked me to help him. I read him, uh, sticks with me till this day. I read him a passage from the Quran called Surah Al-Buruj. Al-Buruj al-Ma'ud And the passage is a story actually about uh, a time before Islam when because Islam is an Abrahamic mm-hmm. faith, we believe in all of the Abrahamic prophets from Adam all the way through. Think of all the Old mm-hmm. Testament prophets. Mm-hmm. They are our prophets. We mm-hmm. believe, in fact, that's our tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, of course, the, the age-old debate is whether they're, uh, whether, you know, whether Jesus was accepted by the Jews and we say, was Muhammad accepted by the Christians? It's mm-hmm. the same conversation. Right, right, right. And uh, so this story that I read to this number 41 was about a Christian um a Christian boy that was tortured for his for his faith in in one God, and uh, of course for us that's a Muslim story. Mm-hmm. So we were I, I read him that passage. He thanked me, and his number was called, and then I had to listen to him scream as he was tortured and electrocuted. Mm-hmm. And then they dumped his body next to me, and they called my number up. And um, for whatever reason, when I was uh, when I was asked to to tell you know to tell them what I was doing in Egypt, and whatever. I, I mean, I stuck I stuck to what we'd been trained to say. I said, my name is Majid Nawaz. I'm a member of Hizb al-Tahrir and, uh, from Britain, and I have nothing more to say to you. And he said, right, you've got another day to think about that. He had just tortured my friend in front of me, and he said, uh, who was also a British mm-hmm. citizen. Uh, his name was Reza Pankhurst. And he said, um, you've got one more day to think about the fact that you don't want to answer our questions, otherwise we, we'll do to you what we just did to your friend. In that moment, in that time between the day expiring and me having to go back to face my interrogator, uh, the British embassy finally made contact. They should have got us out there within 48 hours, but they made contact in the four-day period. Mm-hmm. And then we were taken out of that dungeon. So I was saved by the bell. Wow. And we were put into solitary confinement for, for four months. And we had 15-minute break, uh, 15 minutes break a day. It was a bare cell with no toilet and no sanitation. Um, we had to basically relieve ourselves on the floor and use a bucket in that 15-minute break to, to wash the floor down. Eventually, we were charged with uh, charges that began as attempting to overthrow the Egyptian government. The convictions in the end were a lot lighter than that. Mm-hmm. Um, we were convicted for propagation by speech and writing uh, for the ideas of a uh, an organization that doesn't have a permit to operate. That was the eventual conviction. Wow. Uh, I remember it till this day, the Arabic charge, Tarwiji bil qawli wal kitaba li jama'atin ghayri That was the charge that we were eventually convicted for. We got five years in prison, but because the charge was, as I just read to you, Amnesty International adopted us as prisoners of conscience Mm. because the conviction was very, very overtly sentencing us for ideas they didn't like, which was the idea of resurrecting this caliphate that I've just... So Amnesty got involved. Um, This is the peak of the war on terror. Just imagine Mm. 9-11 has just happened. Mm -hmm. Um, In fact, Iraq was invaded while we were in prison. Mm -hmm. So people often... Uh, when I speak to people um, and they were like, yeah, yeah, I was against the Iraq war. I'm like, yeah, I was in prison opposing the Iraq war mm-hmm. in Egypt from mm-hmm. our jail cells. We we rioted at the time Iraq was invaded. Uh, but that sentence lasted for five years and eventually I was released and uh, returned to, to to the UK 
in 2008, uh, 2000, sorry, in six, mm-hmm. 2006. And uh, my time in prison, those five years in prison, I spent a lot of time studying and reading and mm-hmm. debating across the political spectrum of political prisoners. And I came to the conclusion that what I'd spent my, up until then, I was 24 years old, by the way, mm-hmm. when I when I was taken to the torture dungeon. So from the age of 16 to 24 is what, what everything I just described to mm-hmm. you happened. But for me, it felt like a lifetime. Um, and I, uh, upon my release at the age of 28 years old, could no longer subscribe to the ideology that led me to that situation. After the intense debates and study, I'd, mm-hmm. I'd spent those t- five years sentence or the four and a bit years in prison intensely studying um, traditional Islamic theology, mm. uh, jurisprudence, um, Quranic recitation and memorization, uh, debated with the who's who of um, the Islamist scholars at the time in uh, in the world, because it all began in Egypt, mm-hmm. but also uh, the uh, uh, Islamic scholars that were interned as well. And I came out with a really, really thorough Islamic and political education and could no longer sustain my false belief that the ideology I had come to adopt was Islam. I could no longer sustain that. Mm. But I didn't want to leave that in prison. I felt that looked weak. So I I waited. I completed my full sentence, came out, and uh, in fact, gave a BBC Hard Talk interview with uh, with Sarah Montague, um, where I was still a member of the group, which is still available online for people Mm -hmm. to see. Um, That was a 28-year-old me. But about a year or just under a year after that interview is when I, I left the group because they asked me to become a leader or the leader in Britain for the organization. Uh, but I felt that was going to be hypocritical because I, I really couldn't subscribe to those ideas anymore. What was it that education-wise or these ethical debates or that you're engaging in inside of prison, what was it that actually transformed your view and wanted you to move away from the ideological position back towards the faith? and? Uh, you mentioned coercion earlier. Like, was it was yeah. it that line? Well, so the, 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 what we led with or kicked yeah. off with, that kind of conversation, the thing is I was in prison with people that would have known because the assassins of the former president of Egypt, um, Anwar Sadat, he was assassinated mm-hmm. in 1981 by Islamic Jihad after he tried to make peace with Israel. And those that were not executed in that case were given life sentences and they were my cellmates. So they were... They had, by that time, they'd been in prison for longer than I was alive, by mm-hmm. a year. Mm-hmm. So these, if you think about it, these were like the, the guys we used to emulate. Mm-hmm. And now I'm in jail with them. So I had five years to debate with people like this. Mm. Now, these guys and all the others, the leader of the largest terrorist group in Egypt at that time, which was Gamal Islamiyah, he was with me in jail. The leader of the Muslim Brotherhood, he was with me in jail, which is not a terrorist organization. That's mm-hmm. a, a political Islamist organization. Uh, and so... Those five years debating with all of the, literally the who's who of the global Islamist and jihadist scene, it all began in Egypt. Mm-hmm. The Muslim Brotherhood founded in Egypt. The leader of Al-Qaeda, Ayman Zawahiri, the current leader, mm-hmm. his group, he was in, in that same prison complex, by the way. The founding ideologue of modern day Islamism, Sayyid Qutb, who mm-hmm. wrote Milestones, which is known as a, a Das Kapital for Islamists. Mm-hmm. He was held in the very prison I was in. He wrote the book in the very prison I was in. So it was, that's history right there for the Islamist ideological scene. And I spent those five years debating and discussing with very senior jihadists and mm-hmm. Islamists and attempting, in fact, initially to convince them of my organization. But by that time, what, what I found really interesting was that they had come to 
uh, moderate their views and move away from their previously held convictions. And in fact, they started writing about this in a series of pamphlets called um, Al-Muraja'at, or the revisions. Mm -hmm. These are, in Arabic, they are ideological revisions, uh, correcting Literally in the title, subtitle is Tasih al-Mafahim, or the correction of the concepts. Mm -hmm. And they are correcting the distinction between what had become the Islamist ideology and its rigidity and inflexibility and intolerance with the traditional Islamic teachings. Hmm. I've still got these books at home with all my handwritten Arabic notes in the, mm -hmm. in the, in the sidelines and margins because I studied these and debated these with their authors in prison. Yeah. And it helped to moderate my views. And though those books were debunking jihadist violence as a means for change mm -hmm. i was able to apply the principles on the islamist ideology itself and i should define that if islamism is the desire to impose one version of islam over society mm -hmm. jihadism is the use of force to bring about islamism mm -hmm. so they're distinct gotcha. but both are in turn distinct from islam and jihad mm -hmm. so i'm adding the ism to denote the politicization of traditional values of islam Got it and traditional values of jihad. Jihad just means struggle, right. and primarily it's an internal struggle with the self. Got it. But jihadism is the use of force to implement Islamism. Right. And that's why you'll see Islamist groups, Muslim Brotherhood, my former group, Hizb tahrir and you'll see jihadist groups, right. Al-Qaeda, ISIS, and the difference is the violence, uh, they use violence as a means for change, and these guys don't. Yes. Wow, uh, interesting. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, iCoin Technology iCoin has just released a sleek new hardware wallet. It looks like a mini iPhone, a little touch screen and camera on it. Uh, the device has no Wi-Fi, no cellular connection, no GPS. It's a strictly physically cold hardware wallet. Uh, like I said, it's got a high-res 3-inch touch screen. It's got a camera for air gapping the wallet. Uh, it's got optional Bluetooth compatibility. And it's a really a, a brand new UI, UX experience for a hardware wallet, making it very accessible, easy to use, not intimidating. And as we always talk about on this show, the only way you can truly own your Bitcoin is by having it in self-custody. So you need a device like iCoin Wallet to truly own your Bitcoin. Go to iCoinTechnology.com today and use promo code BITCOIN23 for 30% off of this new sleek hardware wallet. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, the Gold Investment Letter. The Gold Investment Letter helps sophisticated investors navigate capital markets and maximize their profits in trading gold, silver, and mining stocks. The Gold Investment Letter seeks out the most undervalued companies and identifies special situations in the mining sector, and then provides in-depth analysis on both their financial positions and future prospects. The Gold Investment Letter explores many complex domains, such as investor psychology, portfolio management, and macroeconomic trends, all with the goal of making you a better investor. The Gold Investment Letter offers a free version and a paid premium version, and I strongly recommend you at least sign up for the free version, because after having read a few of these issues, I can promise you it is a treasure trove of good information. You can sign up for the free newsletter today at goldinvestmentletter.com. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is a Bitcoin-enabled alternative to legacy health insurance. Now let's face it, legacy health insurance is an absolute scam. Nobody can explain this better than the legendary comedian, Chris Rock. Insurance, you got to have some insurance. You got to, there's an insurance. They shouldn't even call it insurance. They should just call it in case shit. 
and I give a company some money in case shit happens. Now, if shit don't happen, shouldn't I get my money back? <laughs> so with CrowdHealth, instead of just paying premiums that you'll never see again, you can hold part of this pool of savings in dollars and in Bitcoin through CrowdHealth. And when you have a health event, you can draw against this pool of communal savings. So go to joincrowdhealth.com slash breedlove to learn more or sign up. I have a quote from you here, and I'm yeah. not sure where it falls in, but I believe when you were arrested at 24, you yeah, said, right? 24. You were taken away also from your family and your my child. child was in my arms, yeah. Child was in your arms. He was one at the time. Forcibly removed, at presumably, and you were arrested. Yeah. Um, I'll read this quote here, which I think sure. comes from that time period. You said that my marriage fell apart and my entire identity up until that point had been defined by families and friends around this ideology and organization, all of that. Yeah. Imagine you've been plucked out of your reality and you have to reconstruct yourself from nothing. But on top of that, you've just come out of jail. The war on terror is at its peak. Tony Blair is prime minister and Bush Jr. is president. So the world hates you because everyone thinks you are the enemy. You've just lost all your friends and you have to build yourself back up again from nothing with nothing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then and I bought a house in cash in London <laughs> <laughs> about three years ago. So that's <laughs> Managed to do it somehow. what an arc. So you, I mean. <laughs> that was, by you... the way, because I sued the Southern Poverty Law Center <laughs> and won a 3.4 million defamation lawsuit. So I managed to buy a house as a result. Good for you. Yeah. How did you withstand the emotional trauma of that? I mean, I can't even imagine having your child ripped out of your arms and then you're mm. sent to jail for five years, I believe you said. Does that mean you didn't see your child for that time? No, I didn't. No, I, I, so we're still... So my wife uh, left me and uh, raised my, my son. He's mm -hmm. now 22. I'm very mm -hmm. proud of him. He also went to Egypt to study Arabic eventually and now he teaches Arabic three times a mm -hmm. week. Um, He's studying uh, computer programming, mm -hmm. but we are uh, at the moment, it's difficult. Um, and I make every excuse for him because he is a product of being born to the war and terror era with his father unjustly mm -hmm. imprisoned and subjected to witnessing torture mm -hmm. and how that shapes a child that knows, clearly he knows it's part of the story that's been told to him mm -hmm. that he was taken from my arms at 3 a.m. at gunpoint. Mm -hmm. Um, and of course his life is, you know, irrevo irrevocably altered as a result. Sure. So he's grown up with his own view on the world. And I respect the, the, uh, the journey that he's going to have to take to come to reconcile what I then subsequently did after leaving prison mm -hmm. in challenging the ideology that at the time his own mother used to subscribe to mm -hmm. like I did. Mm -hmm. She's also credit to her moved away from that since. Mm -hmm. And did a very good job in raising him. But um, on a human level, I don't think I could expect um, everybody to reconcile things the way I think I've tried to. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's fair on people. I can't explain why I've managed to do what I've done or, or land where I've landed. Um, and I don't think it would be fair for me to try and explain that because, mm -hmm. you know, that requires kind of talking about yourself in a way that's not really, I don't think that's something that in hindsight people can work out. But mm -hmm. But, you know, I can't expect others to achieve that level of whatever I believe I've clarity or whatever I think I've mm -hmm. tried to achieve. So they've got, they've had their own journey. We're not, you know, I hope that the future 
uh, brings that back. But it's not just it's not just my my son and my ex. It's also my, my other close members of my family, my brother, mm-hmm. who again at the time was subscribed to those ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, they've all moved on since. But often I think that, as is the case with the COVID debate, by the way, which is another part where again it was all taken away from me when I started opposing the COVID mandates. Mm-hmm. But by that time, it wasn't my first rodeo. Mm-hmm. But as the time, the case with the COVID debate is the same point. People forget why they don't like you. They adopt what you're saying many years later, but mm-hmm. still hate you for saying it mm-hmm. because they can't remember why they hated you in your first place. All they remember is that's not a good guy. Mm-hmm. So in the case of COVID, to give the analogy, oh, he's a conspiracy theorist or he's somebody that, you know, uh, basically is a bit too anti-establishment for mm-hmm. us. So, but they can't remember. And then they may have eventually, as has happened with the COVID debate, mm-hmm. all of them have adopted the idea that the didn't work. Mm-hmm. The lockdowns were a waste of time, that masks were theater and distraction mm-hmm. and a tool for compliance. They've all now adopted those ideas. Those at least that were most vocal in criticizing those that said these things have stopped criticizing them, mm-hmm. but they still don't like those who said them. And the right. same's happened in the case of challenging the Islamist ideology. Uh, no uh, Muslim publicly any longer advocates what we used to advocate in those days. But in the in those days, that was the default form of political expression that was coming from our community because mm-hmm. the traditionalists were quietest as mm-hmm. most traditionalists are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so in my case, I'm remembered primarily by those um, who have adopted the ideas that I struggled to, 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 to popularize. I'm primarily remembered for being the troublemaker, mm-hmm. um, both in the Islamist extremist debate and now in the debate as well. Wow. Um, so leaving this idea, like I, I get the vision of it being almost like a mafia of some kind that you're not supposed to leave. Yeah. When you decide, I guess you're inside of jail, having these debates, advancing your own perspective on things. Is there a, a certain point that you come to where like, I have to renounce this, this uh, ideology and then... Did you start to lay out a plan to do that? Or was this a gradual thing? Like, what is the actual point of transformation for you? Mm. In prison, it was gradual. Okay. But outside of prison, as I said, it took a year. But the point where I knew there was no return is they literally, the guy that recruited me was the leader of the group in Britain at the time. His name was Nassim. Mm -hmm. And uh, he he said to me, we want you to become the leader. Mm -hmm. And... I said, I get, let me think about it. And when I, I went back to him and I said, I can't, I have to leave the group. I cannot do this because I no longer subscribe to this. Mm-hmm. And he asked me, he said, um, just give me a, give me a week uh, to prepare the group because this is going to be a shock to everybody. Mm-hmm. I gave him that week and then announced it. But that was the, to, for me, that was the, the tipping point because I was forced to make a decision. I could have very easily chosen the leadership position mm-hmm. but i try not to be a hypocrite so i mm. i really couldn't i couldn't do that so it was a matter of, of renouncing this idea of wanting to impose yeah the faith right? yeah i've always remained a muslim yes there is one key difference when i left i was a uh see the word devout or practicing muslim or religious muslim these are all arbitrary constructs because mm. you also know that everyone's a sinner so sure but I was somebody that used to try and adhere to the strictures and the, and the, and the rulings. And uh, when the quote you just read, mm-hmm. when all of that happened and I was left pretty much stranded um, and then, you know, coming into America under armed escort, mm-hmm. it was a very uh, hollowing out time, very stressful and very, uh, 
you know, you lose everything. Yeah. And so mentally and emotionally stressful. Mm-hmm. So I became very lapsed in my devotion mm-hmm. because I'd been rejected by everybody. And I think that was me playing out some trauma. Yeah. But fast forward, this this rodeo, this time around, mm-hmm. it's been the opposite. I've actually found myself coming a lot closer to my faith tradition. I've found myself, um, in fact, uh, returning to the levels of commitment that I had in terms of uh, devotion when I was in the group, but minus the political mm-hmm. and ideological baggage that mm-hmm. I that I uh, that I used to subscribe to. So now I, you know, I'm I'm very happy and proud to say I adhere to my five daily prayers, mm-hmm. fast all every day in Ramadan, mm-hmm. um, and don't drink alcohol. Mm-hmm. And uh, whereas whereas the period this decade before, a lot of my personal devotion was lapsed, and that, mm-hmm. you know, I I think about a lot of that. It was there was too much for me. Yeah to do and I I, uh, I think something had to give and my own emotional and and, and I think emotional and um, let's say health my, my focus on health and emotional stability is something that could have been a lot better mm-hmm. the the intervention by Amnesty International yeah. on your behalf uh, I believe in one of your interviews you described this as the first time you felt like you were actually receiving support from a Western institution um, Absolutely. Yeah. How? And obviously, they were advocating for freedom of speech. Ultimately, yeah. right? It's like you, yeah. the law that you were disposed for or deposed for is just speech, effectively, right? You were propagating yeah. bad ideas. Yeah, it, it's in the charge. Yeah, tarwij bil qawli wal kitab. It says propagation by speech and writing. Yes, that's what we were convicted for. So, what was the? Did Amnesty International then? Was that intervention? Something that helped change your views on Western values, or what? what what role yeah. did that play in your transformation? There's a very beautiful man who is currently, I think, in his uh, early 90s. His name is John Cornwall. He was a local Buckingham amnesty activist in the UK, Buckinghamshire. And he started a, 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 and when I say local, so keep in mind, amnesty is both a country-based organization and a, and a global organization. Mm-hmm. So here's somebody from a local city chapter, not even on, a, on the national leadership. So this is a lowly, you know, lowly in quotation marks, lowly, uh, activist in a neighborhood on a neighborhood level. Um, he started a, a letter writing campaign. Uh, and I suppose it had to start there because, you know, peak of the war on terror, who's going to want to defend Muslims mm-hmm. uh, detained by Blair and Bush in Egypt mm-hmm. and, and Mubarak, their ally. Right. So he started a letter writing campaign. And somehow this man managed to eventually get Amnesty International globally to adopt us as prisoners of conscience. And it became a global amnesty campaign now it didn't help us we didn't in a sense it didn't help us as in it didn't get us out of prison early we had to still complete our full sentence but it did help us that it meant that i can now sit here 20 years later and say we were prisoners of conscience we Mm -hmm. weren't charged nor accused of any violence Mm -hmm. and as proof that we were prisoners of conscience we were formally adopted so by amnesty international Mm -hmm. and that's very very helpful Mm -hmm. um and it was all down to this man john cornwall so he and i became pen pals while i was in prison Mm -hmm. And uh, he's somebody that, till this day, has been a observant Christian, um, but on the liberal end of the Christian tradition, Church of England. Uh, when I say liberal end, he's still very much like, um, and I know there's a big debate in Christianity, but he's still very much pro-gay uh, rights and making sure that uh, homosexuals and uh, the LGB part of the alphabet soup mm-hmm. that eventually it became, mm-hmm. but the the old school version of that. So just making sure that, Christ, uh, that Christians aren't discriminating against people that are gay. Mm. 
Um, so he's on the liberal end of Church of England kind of, but he he did a lot and we became firm friends. In fact, there's a three minute Channel 4 film about our relationship because that was really the opening for me. It was that human relationship. He used to write to me letters and I'm sitting in this bare concrete jail cell getting these letters from this guy at the time was in his 70s or whatever. Mm-hmm. We had, other than that, nothing in common. And I'm, you know, we're, we're exchanging these letters. He managed to get amnesty to adopt us. Now, keep in mind, up until that point, my experience with authority had been defined by what I told you, that story, mm-hmm. yeah? So I had been falsely arrested at the age of 15 at gunpoint. Right. The, 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 you know, these were like uh, semi-automatic weapons that had been pointed uh, at our heads for a false accusation of armed robbery because my 16-year-old brother and I were playing in a park mm-hmm. with a plastic pellet gun and somebody thought that means we we're about to rob a bank and this mm-hmm. is before terrorism was ever mm-hmm. a problem with Muslims in fact terrorism in those days was a problem for the IRA the Irish mm-hmm. Irish Republican terrorism so somebody just profiled us and decided we must have been about to rob a bank but my relationship with authorities had been defined by that's the police there for you um, that's not the only time I, I was arrested. I've been arrested many times as a teenager. But then you had the Bosnia genocide and then you had these racist attacks with machetes and hammers. Um, and then Tony Blair is prime minister and is invading Iraq. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is, I can't describe just how oppositional I felt with the world. Like mm-hmm. th- this was like, right. we were enemies. Yeah. And the Thor in that concept came with John Cornwell and then Amnesty International's campaign for us. And that's where I've mentioned in my autobiography, Radical, I've mentioned that where the heart leads, the mind can follow. Mm -hmm. So I had to have a softening of the heart first before I could start um, unraveling some Mm -hmm. of these ideological ideas Mm -hmm. that I'd subscribed to. And Amnesty's outreach was where the heart began to soften Mm -hmm. and the mind could follow after that. Mm. And before that, you, you, before your heart softening, I think you said you were primarily motivated by anger. Yeah. Up until that point. Yeah. And and a desire for vengeance and justice. And a desire for vengeance and justice towards the West in general. Okay. What this is something I've struggled with a lot too. Like anger is one of those ambivalent things, right? It's uh I think I've heard Peterson talk about this. It can invoke both positive and negative emotions, whereas most of the other moods are pretty uh strongly affective one way or the other. What is the role of anger in your in your story like it was it sounds like it was part of your radicalization at least but then in getting through kind of the reformation and you embracing western values how has your relationship with anger changed over time so anger was key to radicalization it still is mm-hmm. if you want to radicalize somebody you do need to get them angry mm-hmm. um and as you correctly pointed out because what it does is it's anger on behalf of people you love mm-hmm. right so it's not hate yeah. It's, 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 it's very important to understand that distinction yeah. um, because you only get angry if you care about something. Mm-hmm. And we were angry because we were, whether it's the Bosnian Muslims or by that time, um, a lot of the others conflicts had also begun to spark. So Afghanistan, Chechnya, Kashmir, Palestine. We were angry on behalf of fellow Muslims that we thought were under attack mm-hmm. all over the world. That's partially correct. Uh, the partial incorrect part of it is that they were under attack not just because of their faith tradition uh, but actually it was more to do with the dynamics of colonialism empire Mm -hmm. uh, economic exploitation but we were framing it in a particular 
one particular ideological lens. But that anger was key because you have to be able to be angry on behalf of people to be then angry at those that you believe have done something mm -hmm. to those people. Mm -hmm. In terms of me... Um, going through a change of heart and, and what have you. As I say, the, the softening of the heart was crucial. Um, but also what that did, and I think that in the US introduction to my book, I've written about my reflections post coming to America. Mm -hmm. In fact, the chapter is called, the preface is called Coming to America. Mm -hmm. And it mentions meeting my wife in there as well eventually. But um, I think that to be able to, when you're angry on behalf of some people to be able to not hate those that you think you're angry at for doing it to those people, mm -hmm. you have to be able to humanize. And the rehumanization is a key element there that comes with human contact. Mm -hmm. You can't rehumanize a people that you've demonized unless you have that human contact. Right. And John Cornwall was the first example of that. But then of course, the more I started uh, trusting that feeling that I felt that John and I had, mm -hmm. The more I trusted in that and, and carried forward with that, the more I have contact with other people that I began to humanize. And eventually, of course, my our child is born, obviously, to me. And uh, an American uh, born and raised in Tennessee who's been raised Catholic. Mm -hmm. um, so the ultimate, um, the, the end path of that journey was a child born to both traditions or both mm -hmm. communities. Hmm. And is, is anger still a motivational force for you in what you do now? Yeah, I mean, can it be channeled it, positively? Yeah, I guess. absolutely. Yeah. It can be. Uh, well, it's not. It's. It's. I don't think it's human not to feel these emotions. Sure. I think the key thing is to feel them, but channel them, as you've mm -hmm. said, and that that requires uh, spiritual grounding. It requires spiritual teachers that are connected by word of mouth to tradition. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's not something you can learn in books. Mm -hmm. You can't learn to swim from a book. You can't learn MMA from a book. Right. And right. you can't learn the spiritual basis for. Um, tranquility from reading a book. Mm -hmm. It's not something you have to, it's something you have to train, just like physical training. Yes. Well, you're, you're touching on, I'm a huge fan of Musashi. Yeah. And he often says that. Yeah. <clears throat> In his book of five rings, he'll describe a lot of things you need to do, but then he yeah. says, you can't learn this by reading. No. Right? The way is in training. He repeats that over and over yeah. and over again. Yeah. And it's a big mistake, by the way. This is a bigger mistake today than most people realize. Mm -hmm. We've become, because, uh, and I went into some of this with my in my conversation with Jordan and mm -hmm. my in, uh, recent appearance on Jordan Peterson's mm -hmm. podcast. We've become a society that's become over-reliant on thinking, thinking that thinking can solve our problems. Mm -hmm. And actually, that's a it's a psychosis state we're in. We've become divorced from um, reality as it is. We are captured in our imaginations, mm -hmm. in reality as we think it should be. Mm -hmm. And we're stuck in our heads. And uh, it, it creates a very paralyzed version of self that is stuck in attempting to think itself out of a rut and that's actually making the rut deeper. Mm. And uh, I, I think that actually a lot of people make that mistake in Islamic communities. They think they can learn the tradition by reading books because what did this, and this is what I was speaking about with Jordan, is the invention of the printing press mm -hmm. has many positives. But one of the negatives is this tendency to think that we can self-teach because mm -hmm. The Bible became, for the first time, accessible to the masses. Right. Likewise, by the way, the Quran and the you know, so the same consequences in the Islamic tradition. The uh, the the rich history of Islamic um, literature and and theology and history and all of that. Those books were not mass published, right. and they were never meant to be mass consumed. Right. Their purpose was never for a mass audience. Yeah. These were debates scholars were having with each other 
on perhaps 10, 20, 30 years of precedence yeah. in their own debates. Right. Right. So there's a book, for example, Tahaft al-Philosopher um, and Tahaft al-Tahaft. Now, these are two books, Tahaft al-Philosopher, The Incoherence of the Philosophers, and Tahaft al-Tahaft, The Incoherence of the Incoherence, is a refutation of the first one. Mm. This is actually a real-life example of two books, Al-Ghazali and Ibn Rushd, or Averroes known in the West as Averroes because he's also a West, famous mm. philosopher for, for Western philosophers as well. This Averroes was from the period of Islamic Spain, by the way. Now, these two scholars, giants in the Islamic tradition, um, giants, I mean, I've got both of these books at home and I, you know, I cannot overemphasize how these men were giants in their tradition. These are like, we're talking of leaders in their fields and they're writing these books. They have to learn philosopher, the incoherence of the philosophers, and the incoherence of the incoherence is a refutation, attempted refutation of that. These two scholars, they are, if you just look at, those two books themselves are quite short, by the way, but they've written compendiums of knowledge. Um, people think that today, because we've got access to these books, we can read this and understand it. But the, mm. the, pro the problem is before writing these two books, the, these two both have written books that fill entire shelves. Mm -hmm. And those books they've written, they're filling entire shelves today because it's it's printed material. Mm. Imagine that was handwritten scribes because mm. that's how they were written. It would be more than a shelf because, yeah. of course, printing, it, it, it kind of shortens the length yeah. of the book because it's sure. more succinct. Yeah. But these are, and that how they would write these is they would dictate them to their scribes. So it was from memory. Wow. That's how people used to write books right. before the printing press, right? Because, of course, they weren't books. Mm. So you'd have to memorize and then you'd have a scribe and you'd have the scribe class. There was an entire, like civil servants or bureaucrats that work in Washington, D.C. now, yes. and all they ever do is pen push. Right. There was literally a pen pushing class of people. Right. They were called al-kutab in Arabic or scribes. Mm. And their employ was you'd pay them like mercenaries and they'd write down literally what you said. Mm. So em emperors would have them in courts and scholars would have them. Mm. And they'd sit there on the floor. And, the, and this is where the idea of the chair comes from the chair of a university, the chair of a company, mm. yeah? Because it comes from the scholar in Egypt at the first university in the world, Al-Azhar, founded by the Fatimid dynasty in Egypt. And that scholar would sit in Al-Azhar Mosque, in the Masjid of Al-Azhar in Egypt, and he'd sit on a chair in a corner, mm. which is where the department comes from, mm -hmm. because he'd be in a corner of the mosque under a pillar, mm. and he'd be on a chair. So the chair of the department comes from that. He'd, sat, he'd be sat on that chair, and he'd be dictating to the scribe who'd be sat there writing everything he's saying. And they would write encyclopedias of knowledge from memory in this mm. way. Now, we think today that by reading these books in print, we're going to understand this and debate right. this. It is a folly. It is really, it's a fallacy. Um, and it's born of arrogance. Mm. Um, it, it, it's, I cannot overemphasize how much we need a living teacher who right. is a manifestation of that faith, faith tradition as a living organism. Yes. It's incredibly important. Yeah, the, the participatory element or the yeah. communal element has yeah. fallen away with yeah. this one-to-one -one access. Yeah. So I mentioned that I discovered you originally on the Rogan podcast, mm -hmm. and I think it was shortly thereafter I started following you on Twitter. And you had this tweet pinned to your profile for some time, and I thought it was one of the best descriptions of the nature of, of human society, human psychology, mm -hmm. something like that. Um, and I'd like to read it. It's, sure. a, it's a six point tweet. And you wrote that the struggles between powerful vested interests over how the rest of us view reality are constant. Point two, this means that information wars are constant and we are the subjects. 
Number three, so we are permanently in a state of both hybrid war and hybrid peace over how to view reality. Number four, hence permanent propaganda is either normalized and we simply forget seeking truth, i.e. Orwell's 1984, or we insist on filtering propaganda in principle and aspire to justice, which relies on seeking truth. Five, therefore we are at a crossroads. Allow centralized sources of information to define reality for us or encourage decentralized sources of information so that truth and hence justice may emerge. Finally, six, the type of future we aspire to depends on, depends on it, closed, exploited, and uncritical, which is centralized, or open, humane, and free, which is decentralized. Yeah. Could you just, I mean, I think it's a pretty brilliant summary of kind of the nature of existing in the human paradigm, right? That we, the way I've described this in the past is the realization that the cognitive flexibility that we have as humans or the programmability, if you will, is our superpower, yeah. right? We can adapt to reality in ways that no other animal can. We can communicate uh, at a scale no other animal can. You know, Yuval Harari says we can cooperate flexibly in large numbers, which makes us the animal that's the top of the food chain. But that same advantage, our cognitive flexibility or programmability can also be wielded against us, right? Yeah. If you don't understand the nature of uh, human cognition, then you might end up being programmed inside of a psyop or on the wrong side of, of an inf- information warfare, as you might describe it. This seems to be like one of the most important things humans could realize about yeah. themselves um, now more so than ever. So how do you, I guess, unpack this and how do you try and talk about this thing that's almost inherently difficult to talk about because we're always inside of the language in which we're yeah. trying to describe the war itself. Yeah, la- language is inherently limited. Yes. I went into some of this again with my in my conversation with Jordan Peterson, the, mm-hmm. the, the limiting nature of language. So just imagine what the printing press that we've just discussed mm-hmm. did to the way in which we ended up being stuck in our own heads. The original version of the printing f- press was the invention of language itself. Yeah, uh, because prior to the invention of language, we would have had a a very um, instinctive relationship with mm-hmm. each other. Um, language ended up turning that instinctive relationship with those that we were born among mm-hmm. into a more abstract yes relationship. And of course, um, that's when you end up in imagination, mm-hmm. and then you get the printing press it takes that a step further now the internet's taken it a step further to point of virtual reality mm-hmm. so you can see how we end up getting stuck in our own heads mm-hmm. um but even uh in between those stages between the invention of language and the invention of writing mm-hmm. prior to the printing press um where language was a oral tradition mm-hmm. it was still a much more visceral relationship with our surroundings because it was a matter of life and death if I could describe the path to water in a desert, mm-hmm. which is what, by the way, the, the word sharia means path to water. That's all it mm. means. Uh, path to life, path to water. But it would be a matter of death for a Bedouin in the desert to be able to tell you the difference between left and right. Mm-hmm. Um, it literally would be a matter of life and death to know what a woman is mm. because you would not be able mm. to reproduce mm-hmm. and your entire tribe would die. Mm. Today, this is an abstract and almost farcical conversation yeah but you can see how 
prior to even the written word, in the oral tradition, words would point you to life and death realities. Um, and so your relationship with language would have been a lot more uh, important. Mm -hmm. So your the purpose of language, as I say, is to describe reality. Now, mm -hmm. now to the quote that you've just read, mm -hmm. uh, one of the things I've said is that if we can no longer agree over what reality is, um, then we can no longer agree on a common basis uh, to solve our disputes. Mm -hmm. And in that context, if we can no longer agree as to what reality is, the only thing that matters is power, because power gets to define reality based upon its own uh, arbitrary uh, parameters, mm -hmm. if there is no such thing as reality. Right. So then, of course, if the only thing that matters is power, you can see how everything becomes about the struggle to gain that power. Mm -hmm. And all the injustices that are then committed, because they're not injustices if there's no such thing as reality. Right. Right, um, right, right. You can't even define them as injustice. Right. So that's where the current assault on reality comes in. Whenever you want to change a, a society, uh, you have to begin by convincing your target audience that everything they have come to hold, uh, hold to believe is true isn't true. Mm -hmm. Because you, that, you can't mold something anew if people are still holding on to a sense of reality from the old. Mm -hmm. You have to first convince them that none of that's true, therefore it's not reality, mm -hmm. so that they are completely pliable. And if you have power, you can then move them to what you want your new sense of reality to become. So in a sense, everything we see around us and take us for true is a manifestation of collective consciousness. Mm -hmm. The collective consciousness of human beings defines reality. Right. And without the collective consciousness of human beings, uh, we wouldn't have reality. So then the real, I think, question from what you read there comes as to how you, how you try and seek truth, how you define reality. Uh, and this touches on my belief that what you just read is one of the fundamental flaws in atheism. And I've got many, many friends. My Famously, I have a dialogue with the one of the leading new atheist thinkers sam harris it became a book mm -hmm. islam and the future of tolerance which became a documentary on amazon prime by the same name um and i said it to them and i'll say it again here um because it's if you think of a, a, of what it means to be lord of everything that exists mm -hmm. or the source of all life um, and I don't want anyone to think of this as some form of grandfather in the sky, because mm -hmm. that in itself is, I believe, something that came about through the political intervention of the Roman Empire, the Council of Nicaea, mm -hmm. where they adopted official Christianity as dogma mm -hmm. and got to define what Christianity is today, including the mm -hmm. image of white Jesus. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. All of that was, they, these were all political decisions. So let's disregard all of that. And so that nobody thinks I'm picking on Christianity. The same can be said for Islam in Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. It is a direct result of the power politics that played out post-Ottoman Empire with Lawrence of Arabia and what's known as the, uh, uh, as the Ali Saud dynasty, who adopted the dogma of uh, Ibn Abd al-Wahhab, which became the official state dogma of Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. uh, what we think of as Islam today and what we think of as Christianity today are direct byproducts 
of what we have been taught by those who won the clash of narratives mm. because they had power. Mm-hmm. In the case of Christianity, as I say, it was all formally adopted at the Council of Nicaea to keep the Roman Empire going. And they decided pragmatically Christianity was the best way to do that because you could have one God, one people, one empire, mm-hmm. which is what the Saudi Wahhabi version also aspires to, is what the Islamists, a direct byproduct of this thinking, were also seeking to do. One God, one people, one empire. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually, so so that's not what I mean by my critique of atheism. I'm not, religion for me is part of the problem. Mm-hmm. What I'm talking about is if you don't have a sense of a source of life or a fundamental life force that exists in all of us that exists independent of us mm-hmm. and but we are of it mm-hmm. if you don't have that you have nothing to aspire to that is uh that is above and beyond or extra to reality to try and seek out and attain mm-hmm. If the only thing that matters is the material world around you and the material world is constantly changing mm-hmm. and there is no eternal truth, mm-hmm. then of course reality is constantly changing and there's no permanent reality. This is the descent into relativism. Yeah. yeah. And I believe atheism in its pure intellectual sense cannot avoid that logical conclusion mm. that if everything is a constant... Um, if, if everything is material and, mm. and matter is simply evolving from mm. one state to another, then what's real? Right. Whereas if you've got a sense of a permanence in a life force that exists independent of matter, if you think of ourselves mm. as uh, a manifestation of consciousness in merely one form, but that that consciousness is permanent. Mm-hmm. What I said with Jordan on his podcast, if you think of a, a spherical ball, and imagine to go into a bit more detail than I did on on the on the Peterson conversation. Imagine that spherical ball has a as a as a light inside it, but mm. you've covered that sphere with a black tissue paper. And then you take a pin and you pierce holes on the surface of that sphere, mm. equally spaced holes all around the sphere. What's going to happen is the light's going to shine through those holes, mm-hmm. and the tissue paper is going to cover the bits where the holes aren't. But you're going to see light coming through those holes. Now each one of those holes is an analogy for the individual. The individual is actually an empty space. Hmm. Our human body is an empty vessel. What we actually are is the light emanating from it. And Hmm. if you think of it in that way, it's the same light that's in the middle of that sphere. All of us are manifesting that very same light. And your form and my form is a hole in the surface of that sphere. If you think of it that way, then there is Hmm. a permanent life force, source, uh, eternal energy, Allah, which I use deliberately and not God, because again, the word God comes with that baggage of the Council of Nicaea Mm -hmm. and the grandfather in the sky and the patriarchal hegemony imposed Mm -hmm. from top, which is part of the problem, by the way. Mm -hmm. With the Islamists, with Christianity, same problem. Um, And it's the idea that, you know, you have to have imposition and empire. Mm -hmm. Whereas what we're talking of is something organic that that grows from within uh, uh, all life. Like the mycelial network Mm -hmm. that is known to exist among trees underground yes. and they communicate with each other mm-hmm. and they look like individual trees. But actually what we've now since discovered is that tree even feeds its child right. through that mycelial right. network underground. 
We know that plants communicate through that mycelial network. Yeah. We're all, if you think of it, we're all like that. So if we you, often say this in Bitcoin that we're all each a node on the network. Yeah. So those trees are nodes on a much larger organism that is the mycelial network. Yeah. 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 And so if you, if you think of it in that way, then there is something to aspire to that exists beyond uh, the, the material uh, uh, element mm-hmm. or matter. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, truthfully, perhaps, we're, we're, we're not even that because we're the whole that emanates the light mm-hmm. and the, the, the whole isn't the real part. The right. light is the real part. Yeah. So that, I believe, gives meaning to the idea of seeking truth. Now, I don't want to say we know the truth, because again, that's part of the problem, mm-hmm. that we think we know the truth. So it's why I phrase it as the search for truth. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the search for truth that is the most important thing, because it's the belief that there is a truth. But ultimately, it's why I began by saying, what does it mean to be Lord of all that exists? What does it mean right. to be that source of all life? Is because only if you, if you, if you agree that matter in a constant change of flux, by definition... If it's constantly changing, that means reality is constantly changing. Mm. That means in that extreme sense, the only thing that is real is that eternal life force. Mm -hmm. And everything else is a temporary state of manifestation from that eternal life force. Mm -hmm. And in in the scheme of things, we're infinitesimal when it comes to that sense of eternal. And so what it means to be Lord of all that exists, or Rabbul Alameen we say in Arabic, or uh, the source of all life, or Allah, is to be reality. Which is why one of the 99 names of Allah, one of the 99 attributes, Allah has 99 attributes, Al-Haq, right, is simply reality. That's one, if I if I said to you today, I worship reality in Arabic, I'd literally be saying I worship Allah. Mm. There's no distinction. Hmm. If I said to you, this is going to freak some people out, another name of Allah, or attribute, depending on how you translate it, is Al-Mumit. The death giver. If I say to you, I worship death, mm. right? Um, I'd literally be saying I worship Allah in Arabic, mm-hmm. if I spoke in Arabic. Mm-hmm. So the, these things can get very easily lost in translation. But any Arabic, if I said I'm Abdul Muit, I'm servant of the death giver, you're going to think I'm worshiping the devil. Mm-hmm. But I, no, no, that's one of Allah's attributes. Because it's an aspect of reality. Yeah. yeah. Because the only one that can give death is the one that gave life. Mm. You're talking of the same thing. Another attribute, by the way, is also the life giver, mm, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, so, meet is a passage in the Quran. He who gives life and he who gives death. Mm. Only he, right? Mm. So, another name is Abdul. Uh, Abdul, uh, so it's, it's Yahya uh, uh, to give life, right? Mm-hmm. So, Abdul is the prefix or servant of, or the, you know, the one who worships that thing. So, mm-hmm. you can be Mumit, uh, you can be uh uh, uh, what do we say? Reality. Haq. Abdul mm. Haq is another name. Servant of reality. Mm. Actually, you're servant of Allah. Mm. Now, this is weird in translation. It doesn't make sense in English, but that's where it's all lost in translation. So back to the point. If you realize the only reality in this sense mm-hmm. is the one, and everything else is a temporary manifestation of that same life force, mm-hmm. and is going to disappear one day, and we're all going to return to that one life force. If you think of it like that, then when you're seeking truth, you're seeking oneness right. with that life force. And it's a pursuit, it's a search, it's a quest. And we can try and get as close to that as possible. Mm-hmm. And so it becomes um, important to recognize that the search for truth is a spiritual quest primarily. Mm-hmm. 
But there's no distinction when you look at it like this between science and spirituality either. Yes. Because on that quantum level, they're one and the same thing. And modern kind of quantum conversations really have arrived at this, but, mm. but ancient Eastern mystical conversations arrived at this a long time ago. So whereas back to that statement. So, so I, that's why I believe that during the psychological assault on our senses, perpetrated by uh, some of the most powerful governments on the planet in synchronicity with each other, a psychological attack on the human being mm -hmm. during that period where they attempted to convince us that black was white and white was black, mm -hmm. which again, Orwell eerily predicted in 1984, right. where they attempted and still are attempting to convince us that man is woman and woman is man. Mm -hmm. um, those that had that sense of seeking oneness with the eternal life force mm -hmm. with Allah were, I believe, more resilient against that psychological attack. Mm. Because if you don't have your Rabbul Alameen or your Lord of all that exists, which is the kind of, again, it's a difficult translation, but mm. Al Alameen is like Lord of all the universes. We, we've always had this idea that there isn't just one reality. Mm -hmm. I say we, the Muslim tradition and, and Eastern mystical traditions generally have always had this idea that, that what we see now is merely but one facet of reality. And mm -hmm. scientifically, we know that, that our, our eyesight, in terms of the spectrum of vision that we see and our hearing and what we hear, right now we think the only thing in this, the only noise <laughs> in this room is my voice and you, right. and you humming or agreeing as I speak. Whatever. Absolutely not. You know, all you need to do is, is twist the dial of a radio. There's a million music songs playing right now in this room right. that you need an aerial and a, and a radio to tune into and then that speaker blasts them out because it can. it's a receiver. Mm -hmm. But they're all here. They're, float, they're mm -hmm. literally floating mm -hmm. around. Just put a battery in a radio and you pick them up. Right. But that doesn't mean they're not here. Or infrared vision. It doesn't mean that there aren't things that we can't see. It's just our eyes can't pick them up. So we've always had this sense there's more than one reality here. But the Lord of all of those realities... Rabbul Alameen, if you don't have that concept, you can't, what, what it means is that you will vest, because there's no basis for defining reality, you will vest the ability to define reality into the next most powerful thing. Because mm. as we said, if you can't define reality, the only thing that matters is power, because power gets to define reality for you right. through telling you narratives it controls. Right. So if you don't have a sense of Rabbul Alameen or Lord of all that exists, all life, all universes, then the next most powerful thing is the state. Um, I, you know, I don't think there's anything more, more, more powerful outside of that. The, you know, certainly you could bring me the strongest man on the planet, not as powerful sure. as the state. Yeah. So the problem becomes that the state then what it gets to define reality. And of course, who runs the state? So what you end up becoming is, and this brings us even to the Islamic concept uh, of why it's such a, uh, I'd say, a vehemently monotheistic faith tradition. Because we, we say, قُلْ هُوَ اللَّهُ أَحَدُ اللَّهُ الصَّمَدُ Say Allah is one. Because the, the problem here is, you end up, if if the state gets to define your reality for you, you end up worshipping the state. And I mean the word worship there in its truest sense. Your sense of reality gets to be defined by the state. So mm -hmm. everything you are, Everything you think is worthy of pursuing, everything you think is a good value and a bad value, your very sense of self ends up being defined by something other people have created. Mm -hmm. So you're no longer worshipping Rabbul Alameen or, you know, the uh, master of all universes or mm -hmm. the source of all life. You end up 
basically worshipping that man-made entity called the state. And they get to define for you what's important, what's not important. Now, whether that's the industrial schooling complex, mm-hmm. whether that's the, in the case of COVID, the medical complex, or the, you know, you end up, you can see where this ends. ends. It's, so we end up thinking that good and bad or uh, or very, you know, existence and non-existence itself can be defined by this thing. And, and so now we're surprised we're in absurd debates about what a woman is, what a man mm-hmm. is, when we're allowing for those definitions and those conversations to be led by the state mm-hmm. and by what it wants to achieve for its own ends with human beings. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't really, so I'd say to everybody, actually, not just me, I'd say to everybody, don't, if you don't pay attention to that, if you don't allow for that to penetrate your thinking, it has no power over you. Mm-hmm. And so back to your observation, where those that existed who did have a sense of Rabbul Alameen or Lord of all that exists, they were less susceptible to being influenced by the psyop or the psychological operation that was the COVID mandate period. Mm-hmm. And so you found a an interesting correlation between those that said that their sense of reality came from their their quest to seek truth with the only version of truth that is infinite, mm-hmm. and that is the source of all life. It's harder to try and infiltrate their thoughts, those people. That makes a lot of sense. So the, the state as a monopoly on violence or force, perhaps is even intentionally trying to degenerate the conversation by attacking definitions or language such that an maybe an independent or critical eye in the pursuit of truth is unavailable, so that then power gets to define truth. It, 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 it is now doing that. It's yeah. intentionally attacking it. Why? Whereas it wasn't, um, well, it was incrementally 10 years ago, mm-hmm. but now it's come to the fore. Yeah. Why? Because the states realize that the illusion that it's, uh, that it's founded on is crumbling. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. With Wasabi Wallet, you can receive, send, and store Bitcoin privately. In Wasabi Wallet, your transaction history and wallet balance are completely hidden. Wasabi Wallet is easy to use. All of its privacy features are built in by default, and it works with any amount of Bitcoin. Wasabi users can make CoinJoin transactions together with BTC Pay server users or Trezor Suite users. For BTC Pay server users, they can make payments directly inside of a CoinJoin. And for Trezor Suite users, you can make CoinJoins directly on a hardware wallet. These features result in the fee savings and security improvements for both sets of users. So go to wasabiwallet.io today to download the state-of-the-art Bitcoin privacy wallet. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Casa. Casa makes it simple to buy and secure your Bitcoin without wondering whether you're doing it right. Specifically, Casa provides a multi-key custody solution, which is by far the most secure way to custody your Bitcoin. Now, when I talk about Bitcoin being theft-proof money or inviolable private property, a multi-key custody model is exactly what I am talking about. Using multiple keys lets you maintain full control of your Bitcoin while also giving you redundancy in case you lose one of the keys. It's also the best way to secure your Bitcoin for inheritance planning purposes. So go to keys.casa, that's C-A-S-A, today to sign up and use discount code BREEDLOVE. That crumbling, is that because we're in a new technological paradigm? Yeah. So so if you go back to the Rogan interview, what I said is that the invention of the printing press led to the 30 years war in Mm -hmm. Europe. 
Because, of course, once you democratized access to information, people mm. would access the Bible for the first time. Mm. And with all the, the cons that come with self-taught religion, uh, one of the things they, they did realize is that they were being exploited by the church and things like favors were being sold. Mm. Indulgences, right? Indulgences. Yeah. And, and so what you ended up with, the 30 years war and the rebalancing of power between the church, the state and the people. Now, the internet has done a very similar thing. Mm. So originally writing did that. Mm -hmm. Then the printing press did that. We're in that, we're in that moment now with the internet. Yeah. We didn't realize it because, of course, we're the proverbial boiling frog in water. Mm -hmm, We've mm -hmm. been, I don't know how old you are, but I'm 45. 30, 37. Right. So yeah. I remember a time before the internet. Yeah, me too. And Just I remember really. a time before mobile phones. Mm -hmm. Certainly remember a time before YouTube and mm -hmm. definitely remember a time before Twitter. Yeah. Whereas, you know, uh, my son will never. Mm-hmm. My six-year-old son, uh, nor will my twenty-two-year-old. Mm. So, uh, uh, if you if you think of the impact that the printing press had with that thirty years' war, we being the proverbial frogs, uh, being boiled alive during the time of the internet, we're only now seeing the consequences because things are beginning to unravel. Mm -hmm. But it's been happening slowly to us all our lives. The democratization of access to information that the internet has provided. If the printing press led to the thirty-year war, just imagine the destabilizing nature of the internet. Mm. We've all started realizing things mm. in the way that people that read the Bible for the first time back then realized, mm. oh my God, <laughs> this church, it's literally a cartel, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, and now we're realizing government is literally a cartel. Yes. Forget the church, right? Government is media, literally cartels. Like I'm not even, it's not a metaphor. They right. are literally cartels. Right. It, one phone call from Murdoch and he got rid of Tucker Carlson. They chopped their right arm off. Mm -hmm. That's the power they have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because they're literally cartels. So, it, and if you question a cartel, we know what happens. Sure. So, so the internet's impact is going to be even more powerful and more profound than the invention of the printing press. Mm -hmm. And so, all of the wars you see in the world today, uh, we think we're not in a thirty-year war period. But if you think ISIS, if you think Afghanistan, Iraq, th this is the thirty-year war period, mm -hmm. longer than thirty years mm -hmm. that we've been in. Um, and the te the 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 kind of impact that that technology has on us, we will not know until much later on. But the decisions we make now are going to disproportionately affect the future of humanity yeah. in a way that the decisions they made with when the printing press came about affected us. And if you if you look at that at that situation, it's why I say that actually right now the the state recognizing that it's losing its grip on that on that illusion mm -hmm. that it had to maintain its power. It's acting desperate and it's going to try and create a new illusion mm -hmm. to keep up with people who have lost faith in the old illusion and are creating their own new illusions for themselves. Right Now the state's version of that new illusion, as you'd know, as somebody that's in the leading kind of commentary on the Bitcoin side of things, the state's version of that, what they want to get away from the old illusion, they want us to adopt the new one, CBDC, central bank yeah. digital currencies. Of course. And, but why? Because it, that suits them. So they're going to try and maintain their power. There's uh, the only way to do that is say centralize even more. Mm -hmm. So the central bank digital currencies will keep us enslaved to their monetary system because we're, we're beginning to, um, completely lose faith in the illusion that was fiat currency. Mm -hmm. The Wizard of Oz is the best film for mm -hmm. that example, but we're, we're in that moment where mm -hmm. we're looking behind that curtain and we're seeing the wizard is this kind of old, weak man you know, working on this old, outdated machine. Mm -hmm. just like, Burr, money printer go burr. Yeah, trying to keep the thing going <laughs> yeah. and everyone no longer believes in this thing, yeah. right? So the debt ceiling thing that's just happened is an example of yeah. that. I mean, what? There's roughly, the US government owes 
roughly $3,800 for every man, woman, and child on this planet. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's how much debt the US government yeah. is. This is unsustainable. Yeah. But it's because, as you know, I don't know, preaching to the choir here, the fiat system, the printing money, right? These old illusions are falling away. Mm. And the, as a result, that kind of defining truth for us is going to collapse. Mm -hmm. And so they're desperately scrambling to create a new truth and a new narrative around that truth that they can have us under the yoke of. Mm -hmm. To do that, this is the point, to do that successfully, they are accelerating the destruction of the old illusion because they mm. realize they've lost that debate. Mm -hmm. So to accelerate the destruction, whenever you're in a moment like this, um, as the as the old communists in the Soviet Union always used to say, if you can't beat the opposition, you have to become the opposition. Mm -hmm. You're going to start seeing voices emerge that are 100% establishment voices, right? Now adopting the same stuff that I said on the Rogan podcast over a year ago. Because the the deep states realized that the illusion is now beyond the tipping point to a point of no return. It is collapsing. So now you have to mop up all of the opposition by still controlling them. So you have mm. to become more anti than the antis, mm. accelerate that uh, collapse in the illusion uh, of the old illusion uh, so that you can gain the trust of those who have stopped believing in that old illusion mm -hmm. to steer them to the new one. So you'll find voices uh, that are equally critical of fiat and then suddenly, oh yeah, but you know, uh, CBDCs is the solution to all of that. Right. And they're calling it crypto. Right. And as you know, they're mixing the language on purpose, sure, sure, right? Sure. To, to, to get the Bitcoin people into this yeah. as well. And so to do that, you'll find that the sense of reality has to be, uh, it has to be attacked. You can't move people if they're still wedded to, to realities you're trying to move them away from. Right. So we're in this period right now where nothing makes sense anymore. That's deliberate. And they'll flood the zone. They're flooding the zone with information. Part of that is you're going to start, you know, these, the proliferation of debates like whether the earth is flat or round or whether uh, the people doing this to us all are actually literally reptiles, literally lizards, uh -huh. or are just uh, uncompassionate human beings. Right. Uh, whether a woman is a man. Yeah. These absurd debates, and I say absurd, doesn't mean they're wrong or right. They're just absurd. Mm -hmm. Right. The zone needs to be flooded with them so that no one can argue. I could sit here right now and give you a two hour lecture on why the earth is flat. Mm -hmm. I can actually do it. Mm -hmm. I could also give you a two hour lecture as to why they are actually lizards. Mm -hmm. And I could give you a two hour lecture as to why, um, uh, what else did we just, the third example we just gave. But the point being, yeah, mm -hmm. that if you, if you, to get people to, to, to move, you have to, you have to destroy the reality from under their feet. Right. And that's where we are. And, and, and now either we succumb to that, to the, to the establishment's uh, attempt at steering us to their new reality. And then our children will then again assume where we land, they'll then assume that's reality until mm -hmm. the next time this is done to us. Or, and that was back to the quote you read, or we recognize this is going on and recognize that actually if we do allow this to happen, where our children land, mm -hmm. we'll forever, forever surrender human sovereignty to the state because once you've centralized on a planetary level yeah it's permanent yeah and then you really are in 1984 and even if it's two blocks as orwell explained with the eurasia and the oceana mm -hmm. in orwell's 1984 um it's still permanent you know you yeah. can't because uh, the, the other problem is it you know it's two blocks in the planet and they're both fighting over whose whose narrative is true but it, it, there's 
the individual in that context is absolutely powerless, which mm-hmm. was the point of the book, 1984. Yes. So the I see, back to the, what you read there from my post, I see the only way out of that, the only way out, because technology and bureaucracies will always err towards centralization. Mm-hmm. The more um, uh, technology is an efficient way to do things. The more government acquires efficiencies, the more centralized it will become. Sure. And that's just how bureaucracies work. So for my, my opinion is the only way out of that is to recognize that we've got to, we've got to jump off that conveyor belt. Stop playing that game. Decentralization, I believe, is, is, is something that inoculates us against that ever happening again in the future. If there's no central point of failure, mm-hmm. there can be no central point of propaganda. Right. So is w- the role then of religion or spirituality, is it indispensable to resisting this centralization and control over narrative that people need to believe in something that is outside of the sphere of government, something that is uh, agnostic to human affairs, some absolute, I if guess. There, if, if there's no Allah, the king is Allah. Mm. I believe it's essential, yeah. If there's no Allah to define, to, 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 to aspire mm towards for the sense of truth yes and remember i'm saying allah is truth yes. and reality yes. and life and right. death all of those things right. yeah if there is no that thing to aspire to then the king becomes that thing right for everybody i've heard this put that if you start confusing the principle of sovereignty with an individual sovereign that's the beginning of the end for yeah. a society right when you Precisely. vest absolute power into yeah. an individual and this was the revolution that um, Muhammad, upon him be peace, brought to the Arabian desert in the sense that he said, look, forget these idols that you think have power over you. And of course, whoever controlled the house in which these idols were and the offerings that were given to them, there was a whole economy around it. And, and the, the, the Kaaba in Mecca was the center of this trade route mm-hmm. between the Romans and the Persians who were crossing these deserts. Um, and so it became an economic foundation around this kind of, uh, these idols and the sense of power being vested in these things and therefore in whoever controlled these things. Mm-hmm. So along comes uh, Muhammad and says, you don't need any of this. You're sovereign. You have a direct relationship with the source. So your sense of self has to exist outside of any of these structures. Mm-hmm. And it exists between you and all life around you. Because you are all life around mm-hmm. you, and all life around you is you. Mm-hmm. That was a very revolutionary concept, and I think that, um, I think that it, I believe it was the same thing Jesus was saying. I believe mm-hmm. it's the same thing Moses was saying, and that's why we think it's the same thing throughout the Abrahamic mm-hmm. faith traditions. But that's what empire sought to appropriate. Um, I often say everything is appropriation. Mm-hmm. Emperors realized the revolutionary power of that concept, mm-hmm. so. They appropriated it and conflated it with this man in the sky concept because that's the dominion you need as an emperor to then have empire. Mm-hmm. You need to have this idea that it's it's a relationship that um, that is hierarchical, that has uh, this kind of um, that 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 has this. Uh, it emphasizes hierarchical power structures mm-hmm. to control your dominion and your empire. Hmm. Which is very different to saying, I don't need any of that. I don't need government. That's where I I stand. I don't need any of that to have this direct relationship, a sense of self and therefore a sense of reality. Hmm. Which is why during COVID, you know, 
people often they're like, wasn't that hard, Majid? You know, the time I did that Rogan interview, it was not just blasphemous. That's a, that's putting it mildly. What mm-hmm. I said was too controversial for the Rogan show. Yeah. People often forget that episode. It was, was censored, right? For three weeks. Yeah. It was. It was. It was completely taken. It wasn't. I had to put out videos online on Twitter before I was. I, now I'm very heavily shadow banned on Twitter <laughs> as well. At the time, I wasn't so shadow banned. Um, basically, directly addressing Eck. What's his name? Uh, the Spotify CEO, Daniel. Uh, I'm not sure. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah. but Spotify was the one censoring the Joe yeah. Rogan. Spotify episodes. censored it for three weeks, and I said, "You claimed that you were upset with Rogan because he hadn't had enough." In his own words, mm-hmm. ethnic minority voices, we're going to give more platforms now to marginalized voices. I'm like, mm-hmm. your very next episode was mine. Mm-hmm. You can't, like, I am, you know, you, this is what I find absurd with this woke, honestly, it's just pandering, right? It's virtual thing. It, if you wanted to write a story with all the checkboxes of whatever the woke narrative of victimhood is, mm-hmm. you know, my story would fit. Mm-hmm. It's up there with, you know, whether it's imprisoned in the war on terror, face racist violence, whatever you want to say, yeah? racism and discrimination mm-hmm. and yet you censor my episode mm-hmm. so it was at the time it, i'd just been sacked I'd, be, I'd lost my career i had a, a a radio show on the on a on the uk's largest um commercial radio network so, so it wasn't just a lot a job i lost by the way as, as i'm sure people in this room can empathize, empathize, um, empathize with it was mm-hmm. a career that mm-hmm. they took from me because mm-hmm. no one in that world is going to hire me again mm-hmm. You know, I'm now the conspiracy theorist. So at the right. time it was, they, they took my career from me and then I get this, eventually get on Rogan because I'd already known Rogan through the Sam Harris conversations and I'd been on his show once because of that. I managed to get on Rogan and then Spotify tries to hold that back. So think mm-hmm. of the time. The time, I often say it was like, it's difficult to describe now because these ideas are becoming normalized. Mm-hmm. But it was deemed insane yes. to say half this stuff on Rogan. Right. But it's all been verified now. It's all come out to be true. Yeah, and we're still seeing censorship around it. We, I mean, we were hit on this show a few weeks ago for medical misinformation just for talking about some of this this topic. Um, so you mentioned appropriation. Yeah. It has occurred to me, and this is just me hypothesizing, that perhaps this wokeism narrative that we see, it seems to have appropriated certain features from things like the civil rights movement. And it's tried to apply them to this narrative or psyop to make it seem more legitimate. Whereas in reality, it seems to be taking people down that very path you describe, like away from any type of moral absolute into this realm of pure rel- relativism, yep. such that, you know, power reigns effectively, right? There is no absolute truth. Yeah. Everything's relative. Therefore, power is is the ultimate um, arbitrator of, or arbiter of truth, I suppose. Yep. How do you now other people? By the way, sorry to cut you. Yeah. Because the 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 ultimate conclusion there is, if power reigns, the ultimate conclusion there is the the narcissistic individual is all that right. matters. Right. Because because at the extreme level, if power reigns, then the more then you are acquiring yes. that power to reign. Right. Yeah. So the only thing that matters is the narcissistic individual. You can see from there. Yes. How you end up with you know I self identify as a right rhinoceros. Yes. Yes. And then using the force of coercion or law then to compel people to play pretend with you if you identify as a rhinoceros or whatever else what um is that i guess an accurate way to look at it that the state is trying to adapt to these revolutionary moves against it and and appropriating things from say the civil rights movement and applying them to wokeism 
to make this seem as like a legitimate social concern. Whereas the reality seems to be, it's another one of those idealisms that's being funded to cover up theft. It's doing it as we speak. Look, yeah. I'm not going to, can I not pull any punches? Please. Yeah? Look, Elon Musk and Twitter and his purchase of Twitter and DeSantis and Elon appointing a director of the World Economic Forum as his new CEO for Twitter. All of this is the uh, establishment reacting to mm -hmm. the kind of thing we said on the Rogan episode. It's mm -hmm. not just me, but everyone who, you know, people in this room and others who subscribe to this critical view mm -hmm. have been saying they, they are trying desperately to keep up. And, and I've been open and vocal about this, about Elon Musk mm -hmm. from day one, while people again at the time criticizing me for saying that, you know, we've got to treat Elon Musk with the skepticism that somebody that has multiple defense department contracts that runs effectively today runs the US space defense program. And you think this is a man of the people. He's the richest published billionaire on the planet. Now he does good things and bad things like yeah. all of us. Yeah. So sure. I give credit where credit is due. Um, Twitter is probably a nicer place for most people since he purchased it. Mm -hmm. Not for me, because I'm still heavily by him, mm -hmm. heavily shadow banned. And the reason is because I'm I'm still warning about the appropriation of this message mm -hmm. by people that have realized that they need to accelerate the decline because they've lost the argument. Mm -hmm. Now, if you've got the world's richest published man, owner of multiple defense contracts, runner of the US space defense program, effectively, mm -hmm. owner of the world's most powerful communications weapon, which is Twitter, mm -hmm. and owner of the world's most advanced uh, electric transportation company, mm -hmm. um, pretending that he has a vested interest in decentralization while telling us at the same time that he wants to create the everything app Mm -hmm. X, which is what Twitter's official name now is, mm -hmm. and wants to synchronize Neuralink or bra brain uh, chips implanted into our brain uh, with all of his other technologies to have this everything app and models it along the Chinese app mm -hmm. that does everything yep. with the social credit score, has told us all of these things. Um, now, why do, the, why do people tell you all these things, by the way? People say, um, uh, people use the language in the following sense. They say, Part of the occult is they have to tell you what they what they're doing, mm -hmm. otherwise they lose the right. karma. Yes, this is a mystical is. explanation yeah. for it. The, the truth is, I'll just give you the the reality. Everything we've just discussed, you can't create illusions if you don't cast spells. Spells mm. are spelling; they're mm -hmm. words. Mm -hmm. You won't believe that that's a nice chair unless you know you are able to articulate for somebody else mm -hmm. it's a nice chair then they, you convince them it's a nice chair mm -hmm. by articulating mm -hmm. so language is spells now now to be able to convince us that you're doing the right thing you have to tell us what you're doing and package it as a nice thing so of course they have to tell us what they're doing mm -hmm. that's how they convince us of the illusion mm -hmm. the only thing they have is language mm -hmm. i can't force you to think something because mm -hmm. i can't get into your head mm -hmm. until i create the neuralink right mm -hmm. To, to, for, to make you think something, I have to convince you, which means I have to tell you mm -hmm. what I'm doing and convince you it's a good thing. So put aside the mystical explanation that they have to, the occult has to tell us what they're doing. They have to declare their hand because otherwise they suffer bad karma. The truth is, no, otherwise they can't conjure the illusion. Mm -hmm. So it's obvious they have to tell us what you're doing. So, so, so take it at face value. Look at what they're telling us. When, when on Rogan, I said, look, Klaus Schwab is telling us that he's, penetrated the cabinets of the world mm -hmm. and he used Macron and Trudeau as an example. He's telling us that because he has to sustain the illusion that their presence in these cabinets is a good thing and therefore the Young Leaders Program of the World Economic Forum is a good thing mm -hmm. because to, to, to convince us that it's a good thing means we continue supporting it, funding it, uh, 
giving it that kind of prestige. That's all part of sustaining that illusion. So Musk comes along and tells us he wants to create the Everything app. Mm. He's telling us all these things, so we end up defending Musk when he's creating the Everything app. Mm-hmm. If he hadn't told us, we'd have nothing to defend when he's criticized. Right. We'd so, probably be skeptical if yeah. he hadn't told us. Yeah. Now, now that, that's the thing is we have to therefore realize that the, the, on the point of appropriation that you've just met, it's happening as we speak. Musk appointing a World Economic Forum director as CEO of Twitter, while himself being who I've just described, wanting to create the Everything app. Um, he just went to China and spoke to Xi. Before that, he was in France speaking to Macron. DeSantis, who implemented lockdowns, um, who is a uh, former um, Guantanamo Bay Navy lawyer. Um, uh, allegations abound around interrogation under you know torturous conditions in Guantanamo. Mm-hmm. Um, all of this is because it's it's been very quickly realized that they have to become the opposition mm-hmm. because they've lost the debate. The way to tell, though, is when these arguments are appropriated then one of the key things you're going to you're going to see is that um voices that don't subscribe while saying the same thing aren't promoted are still shadow banned but voices that say these things without criticizing the these key voices are actively promoted on twitter so you'll find that everything that was now said in that Rogan podcast, I mean, including things like Twitter is a psychological operations weapon, mm-hmm. right? Um, naming the individuals that were Twitter staff mm-hmm. that were actually doubling up not only as Twitter staff, but also as um, um, uh, as agents of the security state. Um, all of this was revealed on Rogan, by mm-hmm. on my Rogan episode. Mm-hmm. All of this now is being actively allowed on Twitter, but the one that said it is still being shadow banned. Mm-hmm. So that, that's where you can start looking at this and realizing what's going on here. Arguments are being appropriated while the individuals that initially push them are being marginalized because mm. that's what you need to do when you appropriate an argument. Then mm. you can steer it. Mm. If you've got everybody on Twitter thinking Elon Musk is the savior of the universe, when he creates the Everything app, it's a lot easier to create that buy-in if you've owned the audience that would originally have been skeptical of you doing that thing. Right. But now you're you're their savior. Mm. And I find it really absurd that people that think they're anti-globalist, anti-establishment are blindly hurtling towards this direction, endorsing a man as their savior who is telling them that he's going to create an app that in the end is it does everything for them, locks them into this system. He's already implemented the fact that you can't get this blue check anymore without subscribing to the system, giving him your digital yeah. ID, your, your financial data. He's telling us he wants to synchronize that with everything else. And you end up with the Chinese social credit system. Mm-hmm. He's told us he's modeled it on that. What's that Chinese app called? Weibo or what is it? Yeah, uh, WeChat. I yeah, think. and WeChat. Yeah. There's video of him saying WeChat is awesome and i want twitter to become wechat he's mm-hmm. on video saying that um my my substack it's called radical media mm-hmm. the last article i published on elon musk has that video it, it, i can't embed it anymore because mm-hmm. musk's at war with substack because <laughs> so you, you can't even embed tweets anymore mm-hmm. there. but but it's i've i've got it as a screen grab you click through you'll see the video and he's like yeah let's make twitter wechat wechat the chinese app is the chinese everything yeah. app you you like that Black Mirror episode, if there are undesirables in your zone, right. it gives you points for moving away from them. Yes. 
<laughs> this is the app he's aspiring to, and people think he's the savior of the anti-globalist message. So this is a classic case of appropriation of the message. Yeah. Now, he's done good things. He's not, you know, he's not Satan. You know, I'm going to temper this criticism by saying that, you know, he's done good things as well. But it's important to, I think it's important to always remain skeptical yes. and critical of power. Right. Not to become sycophants for wealth and power, just because they start saying things that we like to hear. Yeah, because there's the possibility that he could be developing rapport with people, right? Such that he introduces this thing that's actually dystopian, but he presents it as something that's yeah. a solution. Yeah. yeah, I mean, why appoint a director of the World Economic Forum? Is it you have, right. You're the world's richest published man, yeah. right? You have the choice of the planet. To Anyone would want to be your CEO who mm -hmm. wants to be a CEO. Yeah. You appoint a director of the World Economic Forum. Right, for sure. Somebody that was so pro-vaccine mandates, yeah. pro-masks. Again, I've documented all this on my Substack mm -hmm. on, on radical media. What is the role of money in all of this? If, it, if the end game or an end game is to move people from this legacy fiat financial system that is collapsing, right? We're yeah. actually actively contributing to destroying that illusion to move people into another illusion, yeah. which is the CBDC. Does that make money the end? I mean, this is the end of these psychological operations is that you're, you're again, we're back to these narratives being peddled such that you can steal from people or put people into a complex where they can be controlled or stolen from at will. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the, you don't need me to tell you, but if you look at the fiat system, what we thought was post-colonial liberation, at least on a macro level, wasn't. On a macro level, all those countries that basically gained independence after colonialism are still slaves mm -hmm. on a macro level. The What, what um, post-colonialism achieved was that the physical presence was no longer there. Mm -hmm. But but the uh, those countries aren't independent. They don't have the ability to set their own economic policies uh, because they're all tied to the fiat system, which is basically the US dollar standard mm -hmm. around the globe. And the policies in that system are determined by those that control the source of money, which is the Federal Reserve. Mm -hmm. And so really, again, one of the illusions that's falling away and that we're all becoming aware of at the moment is just how enslaved we are to that system. Mm -hmm. And you can see it. You can see how, um, you can see how uh, the transfer of wealth that happened in the COVID mandate period, you can see how when they shut everything down, and uh, when they started uh, printing money, mm. in the UK, we had this thing called the furlough scheme. We were all locked in our homes and the mm. government started printing money. It started giving us money to stay in our homes. Mm -hmm. Now, that was uh, similar to the universal basic income model. Mm -hmm. You can see how if we are dependent on our monthly check from the government, how it becomes very easy to turn that off if you say something that the government doesn't like. Right. Now, again, on Rogan, I said that was going to happen. In the three-week period that that podcast was censored, lucky for me, Canada switched the tap off when it came to money. If you remember with the truckers' mm -hmm. protest, mm -hmm. they switched the tap off and they said, we're not going to send you these donations. That happened in that three-week period when they banned the episode. And I'd said in the episode, that's what they have the power to do. Right. When Canada did that, it was one of the videos I put up. I said, see, mm -hmm. they had to release the episode eventually. If you mm -hmm. watch back that episode now it doesn't you know it, it states all these things we have to remember it's before all these things happened mm -hmm. but now we can see how they can control people's access to money they can mm -hmm. they can literally switch it off now cbdc's of course 
is a, a, a much more severe level of control than even the fiat system. So to move away from that, when I say decentralization, we whether it's Bitcoin, um, which I you know I tend not to to avoid debates around. You know I know you, you know there's a fierce debate in there. Mm. You know obviously Bitcoin appears to meet that standard mm. of decentralized currency, um, uh, and then you've got the the question of whether or not the privacy is there because of the um, the record being on the blockchain mm -hmm. ledger of every transaction, and uh, but whether or not it's private it certainly is decentralized. Mm -hmm. But whether it's Bitcoin or or it's uh, uh, currencies around the world being based on the gold standard mm -hmm. um, and gold being the thing that the currencies are pegged to so that anyone that has gold has value. Mm -hmm. uh, either way, what we need to make sure we do in this time of flux is make sure we never end up in a CBDC system. Yeah. Uh, what, if we end up with central bank digital currencies being the only thing that as a means of exchange that we can, uh, that we can use as money, then we are permanently enslaved until the end of time. Yeah, very, very dystopian. Yeah. We have to avoid it. Agree completely. Let me ask you this. So if the purpose or the aim of these psychological operations of these narratives that the state is spinning up for us to, they're intended to guide our behavior in certain directions. But again, they're also used as like cover stories for theft, right? Whether it's the printing of money or outright, outright seizures, as we saw with the Canadian truckers or other capital controls, et cetera, et cetera. Hypothetically, if we move into a world where, say, we're on a Bitcoin standard and inflation is no longer possible, right? The printing of money is not possible. Taxing um, these assets, an asset like Bitcoin, is much more difficult than taxing something like real estate. Yep. Um, that in theory, the the carrot or the incentive for the state to fabricate these narratives and steal people's stuff would be drastically reduced. Like it'd be harder to steal people's stuff. Yeah. Is it possible in that world then that we have less psyops, less bullshit, less fabricated narratives because there's a, a lowered economic incentive to deceive people since it's harder to steal from them? Well, if we end up with smaller government, yes, everything becomes less. Yeah. Um, so, and I think we would if we end up with decentralized everything, uh, decentralized monetary system, decentralized mm -hmm. media narratives. With the media, I think we're headed there already. You can see it. Mm -hmm. um, then government becomes smaller. Right. If government becomes smaller, it has less power. Right. And if it has less power, then its ability to engage in these mass psyops is diminished. Yes. But ultimately, any um, institution that has dominion over human beings will naturally attempt to sustain itself, and it will sustain itself by creating an illusion around its strength. Right. But it will be smaller. Yes. Uh, government has become, it's, it's, it's gotten too large, way too large. Mm -hmm. Whether here in the US, the UK is even worse. When I say large, I mean centralized. Yes. In the UK, what a lot of Americans may not realize or remember is that we had a year-long national lockdown, right? That means our entire country was locked down for a year in our homes. That's the lockdown we came out of. We weren't allowed to sit on park benches. They were taped. <laughs> we were allowed out once a day. We were not allowed to visit our elderly relatives when they were dying in hospitals. Mm. My grandmother died and I only saw the funeral. Mm. By the time the funeral came around, we were allowed socially distanced funerals before, and I got lucky. That was lucky. Before that, we weren't even allowed to go to funerals. Mm. That's how much power the UK centralized state has. It is... 
absurd. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is no constitution. There's no Bill of Rights. Mm-hmm. In my recent dialogue with Sam Harris, the recent one, which was on my Substack, it's a three-hour-long one, because he took the polar opposite view to us on the stuff. So I said to him, come and talk to me, because this is really, you know, Sam, I don't think you realize the consequences of what you're saying. So there's a three-hour conversation where I think by the end of it, he began to see the consequences of what he was saying. Mm. Because the point I was making is you were being very American-centric. You took for granted that the rest of the world had a constitution, had a Bill of Rights. But you didn't realize that we were locked. As a consequence of the narrative you were supporting, we were locked in our homes, the entire country, for a year. Uh, Civilians were beaten by police for going for a walk over something that now we all agree had a uh, uh, an infection fatality rate similar to the flu, mm-hmm. 0.03%. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, it's important to remember that the world isn't America, that we don't have enshrined rights. Mm-hmm. And even the US government's too centralized. Just right. imagine what the rest of the world's like. Right. Yeah, very well said. Um, okay, to wrap up. So you you are a man that has had quite the wide spectrum of life experience. <laughs> um, more so than I, I, almost of anyone else I can think of. If you had to distill the wisdom you've, you've gleaned from life so far into something that you wanted to pass on to the next generation or to your own children, perhaps even as in your role as a father, what are the most critical or indispensable values and lessons you've learned in life that yeah. we should try and impart to the next generation to make them resistant to this recurrent tendency for humans to try and deceive other humans to steal their shit? Look, I, I it's strange to say it because I'm still relatively young at 45, but I have actually lived multiple lifetimes in terms of what most mm-hmm. people have seen in life. I've been through a torture dungeon and sat this close with President Bush. Mm-hmm. I've sat this close with Prime Minister Blair, Prime Minister Cameron. Um, I've advised head of, heads of state and I've been left alone in a, in a, in a dungeon. Mm-hmm. I've seen the both extreme ends mm-hmm. of, of, of life. And I only say this to say that um, I've arrived at something and it's that we've got to stop pretending that no matter how smart we think we are, no matter how much we think we've figured out, that even collectively, let alone individually. But let's start with individual. No matter how smart we individually think we are, and no matter how smart we think we as a civilization have become, mm-hmm. there is thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years of accumulated human wisdom, probably from before we even realize, if you go into some of the Graham Hancock and the mm-hmm. ancient Egypt right. conversation, you know, with that Netflix documentary did, but mm. probably before we even realize, there's accumulated human wisdom. We're not smarter than that. You know, the sum of how smart we are isn't smarter than the sum of all existence. That's right, yeah. What does that mean then? It means that tradition has value. So that's the advice I'd give. Mm. Let's not pretend we can reinvent the wheel. Mm. Um, There is millennia of human beings who've decided that the state isn't God. This idea is a modern one, that the Mm -hmm. state is God. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, human civilization up until this point has rejected that idea, which is why up until modernity, most humans had a sense of spirituality and uh, a sense of uh, wonder Mm -hmm. about the mystical elements. 
So I think that what I'd say to whether it's my son or anyone else is that um, as we hurtle through this illusion that is life, which is fleeting and, in, and it's temporary, um, and كُلُّ نَفْسٍ الْمَوْتِ Every soul should taste death. This is a mm. temporary fleeting moment. That's a passage of the Qur'an. But as we hurtle through this, um, we've got to remember that the best we can do is try and hold on to reality and stay grounded and seek truth. Mm. And in doing so, that, 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 that truth we're seeking, it's more likely that it resides in that tradition that has millennia of mm-hmm. experience backing it than me today writing a book. Sure. Thinking I've discovered the answers. Right, right. Now to get that, to access that, I'd argue, find a living spiritual teacher. Find mm. a living mentor. Because, and that living teacher, by the way, it's not enough finding a living teacher because they could have sought, they could have taught themselves in books. Mm-hmm. Uh, find a living teacher that has a, had a living teacher that had a living teacher that mm. goes back in a chain of tradition. Mm. That's my teacher. Mm. Sheikh Ali Abdul Qadir was taught by somebody who was taught by somebody going back to the Prophet Muhammad mm. in an unbroken chain. Wow. My Quran teacher that I had in prison who uh, um, under whom I memorized half of the Quran and I'm going to complete the other half inshallah hopefully in my um, in my lifetime. He had a teacher that had a teacher that went back to the Prophet Muhammad. And I've got I've written all of those names down in the prison copy of the Quran I had in my handwriting in pencil. Mm. I've got those names. Mm-hmm. I can tell you exactly who taught him, who taught him, back to the Prophet Muhammad. Find a living teacher that has that chain of transmission that takes you back to your heritage. That connection with our past is so important. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll end on this point. I'll say what I said to Jordan Peterson. This Bedouin sense that our future is behind us and our past is ahead of us, mm. not the other way around. Mm. And that requires a bit of unpacking. Mm. Our past is ahead of us and our future is behind us. So if, let's start with the easy one. The future is behind us um, because the future is an imagination and you mm. imagine it and it's now past tense. Mm-hmm. The future is nothing but imagination. Mm-hmm. It's behind you. You've just, you're imagining something mm-hmm. that you want to achieve. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's just happened. And really, your past is ahead of you. Why? Because what you leave behind is your future, mm. your children, your legacy, your legacy, mm. right? So what you leave behind is the future. So your past is ahead mm. of you, right? Your children that you leave behind are going to be the ones that mm-hmm. carry on. So what really matters is that. And we've got to give them a sense of the importance of the past. Because it's their future. Mm-hmm. That's why tradition is so important. And we've got to give them a sense that if globalism is to succeed, it, and corporatism and globalism, if they're to succeed, then they will only succeed by creating dislocation, by creating individualism in, in its extremes. Because to have this globally mobile class in this kind of global bureaucracy, mm-hmm. in which the only thing that matters is corporate power, and in which truth is defined by that corporate power, human beings must be dislocated, uh, broken from any sense of family and community, so that they are pliable and maneuverable for mm. the purposes of capital, mm-hmm. so that capital can move them around for profit. Mm-hmm. Um, it's why in modern cities you find individuals living away from community and family in hen in in, in uh, boxes in in pens in like small mm-hmm. small apartments with one room. Uh, and not able to sustain relationships, not married, perpetually single. Uh, 
because that suits capital. You're mobile. Mm-hmm. You can be today in London, tomorrow in Hong Kong. If you're posted to Singapore, fine, you can go. You've got nothing tying you down. That suits capital. So um, that's the future they want. They want the kind of future where relationships are fleeting and temporary, where there's no permanent love. It's just, you know, uh, consumption in the sense of sexual consumption or food consumption or financial consumption. Mm -hmm. But it's all about consumption Mm -hmm. because the only thing that matters is the narcissistic individual. Mm -hmm. That suits capital. So I'd say that the opposite of that is what we need. We need a sense of tradition, community, family, and spirituality. Mm. That grounds us in a reality and that reality that will be ultimately a uh, a product of our collective consciousness. It will be a manifestation of everything that we value. So we have to know what we value and why. Mm. And then we have to work uh, to build that. So, uh, you know, I, I, it's why I even since COVID, I said I returned to a, a firm appreciation of, of my tradition and never left the Islamic faith tradition, but I have returned to it in a way that I take it very seriously, my own personal conduct. Um, and it's what I hope to impart. My, I have a six-year-old. It's mm-hmm. what I hope to teach him as well. It's a beautiful framing. Um, thank you for pleasure. for everything that you do. I, I really appreciate your perspectives on all of this. I think it's a very complicated area to try and talk about um, both our cognition and then how our cognition is manipulated in psyops and whatnot. Yeah. It's, it's a difficult thing to disentangle because it's always contained within language, of course. but you do a wonderful job of breaking it down. Um, Majid, where can people find you on the internet? So I'm, uh, probably one of the most shadow banned accounts, but uh, <laughs> I've got a Twitter account. It's, uh, you have to, you can't, you have to search it out, but, uh, actually my content these days, cause after my cancellation, I was, uh, kicked off all the airwaves and stuff. So you can find my um, my commentary on majidnawaz.substack.com. I call it Radical Media. And there I publish free articles for people, which is a commentary on the state of globalism as it progresses. Uh, and the audio content is behind a paywall, but that's where I publish in-depth conversations. So my one with Sam Harris, it's behind the paywall. And some of the other live streams that we do, we publish as audio files there as well. But for the moment, that's where I am. I'm not sure things will change for the foreseeable future mm. because I don't think that any corporate media entity is going to want to hire me anytime soon. To be fair to them, I did have some offers after they canceled me, mm-hmm. but I took the view that um, that that was an attempt to ensnare me once again. And actually, what we need in this moment is to be able to speak freely. Mm. So I think independent independent uh, platforms is the way forward. What you're doing mm. and what others are doing in terms of podcasts, we've got to we've really got to decentralize and democratize this space. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, Majid, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, it was great having you on and appreciate you being a guest in our home. It's a lovely studio and I wish you the best of luck. You've been going since when, 2019? Started November 2020. Yeah. But uh, yeah, like I said, this just started. So well, um, it's, it's great. It's a lovely place and a lovely space to be in. Yeah. And um, you know, happy to uh, continue staying in touch and, and also uh, anything in the future going forward, if there's anything that uh, in terms of just cross-posting, whatever, let me know. It's I'm happy to stay in touch and and collaborate in any way. Perfect. Likewise. Thank you so much again. Thank you.